the Australian Herpetoculture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. I'm your co-host, Luke. How you going, mate? Good, dude. Good. I'm really excited. We're two weeks out from move. Yep. Counting down the days now. Yep. Yep. I've got the Exoterra room all planned out. Got some fresh black RODI line in the mail today, as well as some uh, quarter-inch fittings and stuff, so I can get that Miss King all around the, the whole room. And uh, yeah, I had to go to Bunnings today as well to get some essential heat lights and a few other bits and pieces while I was there to make a few extra backgrounds. So, I reckon you'll get that room set up before you get your bed set up, mate. I'm planning to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's like, uh, yeah, number one. Well, I have to get the bed there so then like, at least I don't have to sleep in a sleeping bag. But yeah, that'd be nice. Let's roll the swag out, Ubi, right? Yeah, true. I do have a swag. <laughs> and storage is there. So yeah, why not? Hey, you know, how you been though, mate? We've uh, harsher lockdowns. You got a bit of a holiday up your up your sleeve. Yeah, nice two weeks. That's good. And couldn't have come at a better time, I reckon. Perfect. It was funny. Like the announcement got made. I think it was eleven o'clock on Saturday. Everyone was at work, and I think by twelve o'clock, the job was dead. No one was there. Everyone packed up and left. It was so funny because we were supposed to work Saturday, Sunday to try and get stuff ready for Monday. But yeah, as soon as the announcement got made, twelve o'clock, empty job site. That's crazy. That's brilliant. <laughs> brilliant forced holidays hey i know i was actually yeah, i was actually thinking like once this this job kind of wrapped up i was going to um you know put in for some holidays but i might just take these two weeks yeah fair enough make the Not most of it out of the house that's it spend some time with the kids yeah that's what all, all i've been doing so far which is good so that's awesome yeah no time for building gear enclosure background yet next couple of days i'm just okay. going to <clears throat> go to Bunnings and get a bit of um, tile pointing and then I'm good to go. It's essential, right? Yeah, it is essential. Yeah. I've got a few essential things to pick up from there anyway. So. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you're making it worth your trip, that's all that counts. That's it. That's awesome. Oh, that's cool. At least you, I'm going, getting over heckling you about getting this background down. It's only been, know, it's what, taken, 12 weeks now or something. So uh, Something like that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's awesome. Hey, have you, um, have you organized that bookshelf yet in your... Your herp room behind you? As you can see, the books are still sitting on the bench behind me. So <laughs> the <it> is no. <laughs> Can't uh, make an essential trip to IKEA though. So No, but IKEA can come to you and post it over to you. I never thought of that. Yeah. I might have to. I think that's what I'm going to have to do with half of my furniture that I'm getting during lockdown because I'm sure as hell not going to IKEA to hang around there and That'd meet be a everybody hot spot else. Almost, wouldn't it? Yeah, it'd have to be, surely. Yeah. Over there yeah, for those no, Swedish meatballs. Literally done nothing. So <laughs> next 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 week in a bit, I think I will. So that's awesome. I'll keep you updated. <laughs> oh, that sounds good. I'm really looking forward to getting these keys. Hey, I'm like chomping at the bit. I bet nothing better yeah. than a new house. Yeah, yeah I'm, I'm absolutely chomping at the bit. My Boyd's enclosure is almost finished too. Like as far as like hardware and stuff goes, I'm going to be cutting the glass this week at work if I get a chance. Yeah. And um. Yeah, got the rail in over the weekend as well, the the sliding door rails. So that's all in oh, place, nice. ready to go. So I'm just leaving it empty until I move though because I don't want to move it when it's full of full of everything. Yeah, that's what I'd reckon. I'd say I was going to ask you if you're going to wait till the end, but it makes sense rather than filling yeah. everything up and then trying to take everything out and then move it over there. It's already so heavy with all the fall and ply and the background and everything in it because like I did some pretty thick coats of that tire pointing in there. So that probably yeah. added in almost... Well, it's probably almost a full bucket on that background, to be honest. So it was pretty twenty pretty kilos, decent. wouldn't it? Yeah, about ten, I think. Yeah, um, but still, like, it's I'm not going to go filling it out with dirt and all the rest of it. Now it's just too much. But um, in the meantime, I have been mucking around doing some 
I did a new background inspired from Coop, but I started a background f- for my Oedura Fimbria. So nice. Really took a leaf out of his book and did like the kind of same sort of stacked method and stuff that he used in in his video and really stoked for yep. how that's coming out so far. So a couple, awesome. couple more coats and I might get those guys into that box too. So that'll be good to get that done before we go. Yeah, definitely. I need to just crack the whip and do my one. I've got one. You've had heaps on the go in my one. <laughs> Dude, I started, I started another three with foam today as well. I just started cutting it up. They're only little ones. They're like the 30 cubes and a 30 by 45 exoterra as well. But, yeah, got enough foam to make sure I can not, hopefully try to knock all those over in the next two weeks as well just so then they're all done. I don't have to do it done at the new dusted. place. Yeah, yeah. going to be trying out. I think on one of them I'm going to try to do um, I was actually speaking to our guest about this a little bit earlier via messenger, but I'm going to try to do one in kind of like a bark texture. I'm going to see how that oh, kind nice. of comes out just to see if I can kind of try to make one look like a tree trunk. Yep. I have no idea what it's going to turn into, but I've got a bit of a rough <laughs> yeah. idea in my head. So I thought it'd be worth a shot because I haven't seen anything out there really for, for that sort of side of things or making like a fake stick or anything like that. But yep. we'll see. We'll see. Oh, why don't we um, why don't introduce the guest, eh, instead of Get keeping him waiting? Get the man on. Sitting there so patiently. Yeah. So, guys, we're going <laughs> to, <laughs> before we keep yapping on, uh, we're here to introduce Mitch Hodgson from Weirds and Beards. Hey, mate, how you doing? I'm going, going? good. I'm going very good. Thanks for having me, guys. So, Thanks for coming on. Yeah, it's quite exciting to be on. Big fan of the podcast. It's short but an impressive run. So far. <laughs> it's been consistent at least. So yeah, yeah, right. that's the first part. You know. Yeah. Most important part even. Yeah. yeah well, I can't I believe how long how quick it's kind of gone. Like it has been I think this is like number fourteen, I want to say. I think so, yeah. It yeah. feels like we only started like two weeks ago. Yeah. It's because we still act like it's only been two weeks ago. We're still, <laughs> still fumbling around all over the top of each other. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's good fun. Yeah, so guys, if you do, if you don't know Mitch, Mitch is an avid reptile keeper here in New South Wales, and uh, for a good period of time, specialised in smaller gamids and a whole host of other reptiles that would no no doubt we'll kind of dive down that rabbit hole shortly. Um, but yeah, why don't we just start off, Mitch? What what kind of got you into reptiles to begin with? Um, I guess it wasn't the like the traditional path. A lot of people always tell the story about like running around and catching. Uh, lizards in the backyard and i i definitely did that and i'm certainly guilty of killing i think a lot of cryptoblephrus as a child but (laughs) (laughs) um but uh i i never really had like i guess a big interest in reptiles i wasn't um you know particularly offended by them but i wasn't super interested in them i actually had more of an interest in i guess marine stuff so not even strictly speaking, fish, but more like invertebrates and marine communities and things like that. Um, and so I went to follow that at uni, did a university degree. Um, and then in my vertebrate course, in my uni degree, uh, we had this uh, Swedish uh, academic come out and he, he was a really big reptile person. He'd done work with Rick Shine and he'd done work with a, an academic at uh, my uni called Terry Ord who works on uh, an old lizards. Um, and just sort of gave that segment of the course and he sort of really sold them as these really cool, impressive animals. And I was like, oh, yeah, this is pretty sick. So started uh, developing that interest, um, ended up getting some pet reptiles and then, yeah, ended up starting to go do more field work and research work in reptiles, which was quite fun. That's, yeah, definitely not your standard I liked dinosaurs as a kid story. <laughs> <laughs> but it's good. It's good, is, yeah. Yeah, it's yeah, good yeah. to hear a different variety. 
I mean, I definitely like, you know, everyone's like, oh, I've been doing it for like 15 years. I was like, yeah, yeah, cool. I've been into it that long too. (laughs) (laughs) I want to say that you and I probably hit the scene at the same sort of time. I know Jason's, you know, been around probably a little bit longer into the reptile things, but I want to say, how long do you reckon you've been in it now? I think I've been in there maybe like eight years or something now. Yeah, somewhere between, I think six, seven, maybe seven, eight. I don't actually know off the top of my head. Well, I'll tell you what. Around 2014, just before, I think, just around. Yeah. I'll tell you what, though, the amount of knowledge that you've crammed into your head during that sort of short period of time is pretty impressive. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, could... I have been paid to think about reptiles for a bit, so it gives you more time to cram <laughs> knowledge in. <laughs> yeah. I suppose my paying reptile jobs are a little bit different to yours in that sense. Mine's just, you know, how to look after a bearded dragon and keep it alive sort of scenario. So, yeah. <laughs> Still, still a good job to have and still fun. Oh, yeah. I'm not taking away from it, but it's just like that different aspect, you know. I'm not mm. out there learning Latin every day and, you know, <laughs> looking at behaviors and stuff like that like you are. Oh, that's I'm really butchering cool, Latin every day. That's what I'm doing, butchering it hard. <laughs> oh, I'm a good butcher. <laughs> I think I've become an expert in butchering Latin, that's for sure. So when you did start actually getting into reptiles, what did you actually start out with? Like what was your collection like back in the day? Um. Well, so I so the first I guess non typical pets I kept were actually hopping mice. So I got them slightly before um, reptiles. So I started going down that reptile tangent at uni. I was like, oh, these are very interesting, but I didn't really like the idea of the tank and like having to keep a heated tank and all that stuff initially, uh, which is very funny in hindsight now. Um, and so I you know scrolled uh, Gumtree here, bought some hopping mice. Um, and when I went to go pick them up from the person that had them, he actually had uh, a heap of snakes. And he was just a, a guy that had half a dozen pet snakes, wasn't trying to breed them, had these mice, wasn't keen on the mice. And from there, and so I kept them for a bit. And then I was kind of interested in looking around for some, for some more. And I remembered all the snakes he had. I was like, oh, a snake would be cool. And my mum was like, if you get a snake, you're out of the house. Um, so, that one. Yeah, yeah, that, that's a <laughs> Um So I was kind of like, oh, you know, and I sort of, was like, oh, I'm going to get a reptile license too. And I try and I sort of coaxed her and going, oh, so you come see all the reptiles. That'd be cool too. And we'll go get some more hopping mice from this guy. And so there was a, um, a breeder around the corner from ours that um, sort of, you know, had hopping mice for sale and a whole heap of different reptiles and all these sorts of things. Um, and so we, we went there and I, you know, sneakily pre-planned a, a good wad of cash to go buy something um and got there and was like you know oh wow these are cool and show my mom and she got really interested in them um and yeah we were just looking around and you know the person was quite you know quite open to show us all the different species they had you know gigi skinks turtles uh laces all manner of stuff um and in the end we ended up leaving uh we couldn't decide uh between jackie dragons or mountain dragons so i actually ended up with one of each so those were my first reptile or two of each sorry yeah one of each species um, so yeah, I've got a pair of each. Um, yeah. And obviously times have changed, um, cause both, both species went into the same tiny enclosure with a purple light bulb, um, and a very <laughs> small UV. Um, and that's how I started in the hobby, like many other people. And yep. now I keep them in very different enclosures. <laughs> yeah. Uh, everyone starts somewhere. I still remember my first bearded dragon had a, you know, the red infrared bulb in there and, you know, 
Oh, I look back at it and I'm pretty sure the UVB globe had, actually had glass in between the, the UVB globe and the dragon. So, mm-hmm. you know, we all, if you're none the wiser, how are you supposed to know until you actually do some research yourself and really start to understand stuff like this? Oh, absolutely. Exactly right. And I mean, you know, and I, I hold it against no one. Like I know everyone's like, oh, do your research, do your research. Um, but it is challenging when you're not confident or don't have skills in evaluating different things. So you go online, you find maybe one or two hits and you go, oh, cool, this is how you do it. And you take that as gospel. You yeah. know, it's not a crime, but it's definitely a crime once you have a good reason to improve it and you don't, you know, like you should be working towards a better option when you can. You can think- you know. Sorry, you go, you go. I was just going to say, I think anybody, anytime, like we should all be striving towards better husbandry, no matter what level you're at. Mm, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, like, and it'll probably come up in conversation later, but I've got animals housed, not poorly. I think that it's adequate how they're housed, but they're not the way I want to house them. And so, you know, for me, that's the next goal for those guys is to move X species into X setup or vice versa. Yeah. I can always improve. But, um, all right, yeah. So that that was kind of like your your beginning into the the hobby was these. I have to say that is a different species, a couple of different species of dragons than what most people kind of get their initial run at. Like usually it's pygmies and centrals and maybe some central netters or something like that. So that's pretty cool to hear a couple of different. Well, as I said, the next one after that was central netters. <laughs> <laughs> Went the other way. <laughs> they are a cool little dragon. I actually, if I was going to get into dragons properly again, I think that would be. Well, properly again, if I was going to get into dragons like little agamids, then I think that'd be the where I'd want to go. Something like the central netters, I reckon they're quite cool. Um, awesome. So, where where did you kind of go from there? Like, did it kind of turn into a bit of a rabbit hole, like most of us, where you started kind of stamp collecting, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Like, I, I, you know, in hindsight, I, um, I definitely think it was, it was. I had like weird competing motivations for why I wanted to do it, but definitely there was a, a stamp collecting aspect to it. Um, so like, and by weird competing motivations, I mean, you know, um, as I got more, uh, species and, you know, people, you know, got confident with how I was keeping them and I could breed some things that people weren't really breeding that often. Um, people started, you know, giving me things that were thinner and thinner on the ground. So, you know, like a lot of dark peripheral, I was on the person I got them off Tyson. I was harassing him for about three years to get those guys. And then I eventually finally got them and I was so excited. Um, and then he ended up moving for work. Um, and got rid of everything, and they became so hard to find again. So I ended up with them, like the last ones or some of the last ones I knew of. I was just motivated to, like, keep them because I needed to make sure that people could keep these dragons. Um, and so it changed the sort of motivation behind it all. Um, but that's a bit further down the track. I'll probably jump forward a bit there. Um, ultimately, though, like, it just sort of started exactly like, as you said, I, I got the first two lizards because I couldn't decide, and I got some central netteds. Um, then I actually, um, you know, started saving up again and I bought some painted dragons, um, and just sort of slowly spiraled out of there. Um, and you know, you get to a point as well, like when you've got a lot of different species and I know, you know, you and I have done this in the past, Luke, and other people do it as well. You just kind of end up, uh, not even selling stuff. You just end up trading it with friends or giving it mm. to friends, you know, mm. and it becomes a point where, you know, I've got friends at the moment that have species i'd be interested in keeping one day i've got species they're interested in keeping and it's not so much a you know one for one sort of thing it's just a you know i'll help you out now and you can help me out here so it all sort of just formed into that and then yeah slowly grew into a excessively large collection (laughs) i would say 
Yeah, it um, definitely grew quite a bit. I do just have to ask quickly before we kind of go too far down that rabbit hole to as to, you know, where you went there. When you went and got with like into reptiles initially, that kind of kick-started your mum into the reptile hobby a little bit too, didn't it? Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. I um, So I got those reptiles um, and I'd had them for about two months and I, I was, you know, doing everything a new keeper does, spending every day watching them for, you know, four hours a day, making sure they weren't breathing funny or sitting on their left leg at a weird angle or whatever the case may be. <laughs> um, and then I ended up going out to do um, some reptile trapping in just north of Broken Hill. So I went away for two and a bit weeks around, uh, yeah, late late 2014. Um, I was out doing trapping there for two weeks. And so uh, my parents were taking care of them for me. And in that time, they got very attached to them and thought, oh, wow, this is really cool. Um, and then, yeah, just sort of, you know, my mum got quite interested um, in keeping reptiles as well. And she ended up getting, you know, her own bearded dragon. She had a couple of, well, has a couple of central bearded dragons, a um, few geckos now. Um, so she, she has a pair of Castellanaui, the northern velvets. Um, I'm sure Luke's very familiar with those and probably Jason too, actually, yeah. Gecko <laughs> um, So yeah, she's got a pair of those. Um, so yeah, she, you know, she's much more, um, uh, she didn't go down the, the crazy spiral, but um, definitely, she, you know, her interest has been very helpful for me when I need to toddle off for uh, field work um, <laughs> and she can help take care of things, which I'm very grateful for, you know. Um, that, very very grateful for. That's it's it's really incredible because more often than not you kind of hear it the other way around where the parent got the child into reptiles, not kind of like a joint effort where you both kind of fall yeah. in love with a new passion like that. So that's pretty that's something pretty cool and it's pretty cool to be able to share that with your mum. Oh, absolutely. And like I wasn't kidding initially when I said my mum like despised snakes. Um, she came from an upbringing where I guess snakes were very much maligned. Like she lived in regional areas for a bit. Um, and, you know, every brown snake was out to kill you and, you know, all that sort of stuff um, and had a complete, and I would say probably phobia, like, yeah. um, you know, I don't, I'm sure there's degrees of it, but like she got very uncomfortable in spaces where snakes were, like if there was one in an enclosure or something like that, she just really wasn't, wasn't comfortable. Um, and, you know, now she's got her own snake essentially, so ended up getting a children's python and slowly it's morphed into her children's python. Yeah. So, you know, and it was just one of those things like, you know, I, um, I guess as a lot of people that aren't allowed snakes do, they buy one, keep it quietly until it gets too big because it's a carpet python. Um, and then you have to move it somewhere where it's got space to move and you have to declare you've got a carpet python. Not that I'm promoting that to anyone listening. Um, <laughs> and uh, then suddenly, um, you know, it's in a, it was in a, my parents' house. It's in sort of a, a main space. So you've got to just walk past it all the time. And just seeing the fact that it wasn't a sociopath that was out to kill you every day, you know, didn't just strike at every opportunity it had. It wasn't nervous. You know, it was just, you know, just a captive snake that, you know, is chilled out and sluggish like most of them are, uh, or most pythons, captive pythons are. Um, really sort of desensitized her to it. So she's not like, she's not in love with snakes now, but she's definitely, you know, much better with them. and can handle them now and mm. have all these positive things about them. So That's, oh, that's awesome. awesome. <laughs> no, you don't really hear that too often, really. No. No, it's pretty cool for it to kind of go like that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, it's one of those things. It's literally just that, and like I've seen it a lot, I, um, as a, a separate role to what I've done, I also worked in a pet shop as well with reptiles. Um, and you hear it a lot with people as well. Like just that, being exposed to it 
on a daily basis and it becoming normalized really helps a lot of people, I guess. Like I'm no psychologist, but it just seems having that exposure to people that maybe are not as comfortable really helps them get more comfortable with the notion of a snake, you know? Yeah. I've been, I've been trying to introduce that to my wife. My wife's absolutely petrified of octopus. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. So I try to take her to the aquarium at least once a year and try to try to show her an octopus and see if she can do it. But she like almost vomits at the sight of them. So it's a bit wow. It's a bit hard. <laughs> yeah, she yeah. hates them. That's crazy. My yeah. uh, my partner's really scared of uh, eels. Does not like eels whatsoever. And like, it's just it's one of those things like eels, octopus, not things that you often consider phobias. Well, spiders, I get snakes, I get snakes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Octopus are very different creatures, though, compared to everything else out there. Oh, yeah. Yeah, she she finds them completely alien-like. And I think yeah. from memory, she did have some sort of instance as a kid where one was crawling around a rock pool and she freaked out at that or something when she was quite young. So there was sort of like a deciding factor as to where that trigger came from. Um, I can kind of use it to my advantage sometimes, though, because if she nicks me, ticks me off or something like that, I quickly send her some video links to, <laughs> to, to watch. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> And then I sleep in a different bedroom. But yeah, anyway, that's a different story. <laughs> They'll be oh, hurt rooms in the new house. <laughs> yeah, mate, got the swag already. Oh, yeah. well, I can do that. <laughs> that's an option now. I got two yeah. rooms to choose from. <laughs> exactly. Nice and warm too. <laughs> two dog houses. Yeah, that's right. That'd be horrible in summer though. The dog um, house and the lizard house. <laughs> <laughs> So for a while there, I know we kind of touched on it. You were pretty heavily invested in smaller gammas. Was there any particular thing that made you so attracted to them? Was it just the fact that Tyson was kind of like a deciding factor where he kind of gave you these lizards and you you decided that you had to run with that that ball essentially? Uh, so but I should like Tyson. That was a bit further down where Tyson eventually ended up helping, like giving me those um, uh, dark peripheral, but. Um, originally so the main things that like small dragons that are pretty widely available or were widely available when i um sort of get it started getting into them and that's the thing it works in cycles it's funny how it always just fluctuates so rapidly when i started um really getting into small dragons things like ring cow dragons were near impossible to get um 10 years before they were fairly common um and nowadays they're common as can be again um mm. So it was one of those things, but when I when I first got in, things like um, uh, red bar dragons were fairly, fairly available. Tawny dragons were sort of available, so they were around. But a lot of the, the small tenophorus netted dragons, or central netted dragons, I should say, um, uh, yes, most of those sort of things. And that's where a lot of my interest originally went was into tenophorus. So a well-known breeder down in SA uh, called Rick Walker uh, breeds quite a few of them. So or quite a few of the species. So he lives in sort of uh, the Wyala area and just keeps most of them in outdoor pits and, you know, breeds them in, in pretty reasonable numbers. And so I ended up getting quite a few animals either directly off him or from um, uh, like secondary sources, people that had brought them off him originally. And um, I just, as you start getting into the Tenophorus in particular, there's such cool diversity in them. Like they're just so different. You've got the rock dwelling ones, um, you've got kind of those more sand ones like your, your netteds and your painteds. Um, you've got things like uh, crested dragons, which are these, you know, absolutely magnificent, magnificent, sorry, um, magnificent lizards that have these, you know, really cool long back legs, striking patterns. Um, a lot of captive ones don't look as nice as uh, of wild ones, but in the wild they just get these brilliant red-orange flushes. Like they're just, naturally speaking, I think dragons are probably some of the most 
attractive lizards like in Australia. Like, you know, you've got exceptions like, you know, some of the varanids are quite cool looking and things like that. Uh, bashing varanids quite like them too. But just the, you know, the blues in red dards or the blues mm. in uh, northern tawny, southern, whatever. Tawny dragons have been split recently, whichever the blue ones are. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, I just think there's some really cool color variation and, you know, just all the differences in all different environments they inhabit. And so that really drew me into them. And generally speaking, I didn't find them. I don't find. I don't find them hard when you've only got a couple. Uh, so you know, they're definitely a much higher maintenance uh, group of lizards than, um, say, skinks. A lot of skinks I find a lot easier, even insectivorous skinks or things that you'll, you'll primarily feed insects in captivity. Um, dragons just have a lot more maintenance uh, to them, or what I think is a lot more maintenance, especially when you get into larger numbers. Um, with the exception of things like rainforest dragons, rainforest dragons are brilliant, absolutely kick-ass pets. Do you, do you think that's kind of related to metabolism with some of those dragons that do heat up quite quickly? You know, are you talking about like maintenance as in there's a lot of food going in, so there's a lot of feces coming out? Yeah, yeah exactly. So a lot of food goes in, there's a lot of heat associated with it, which is high power bills. Um, yeah. There's Generally speaking, like, yeah, and I know this has probably come up before, but like each state has minimum enclosure standards and they're all kind of wackadoodle. Um, some of the minimum enclosures for the dragons are pretty pretty pathetic um, in the sense that, you know, some of those animals deserve much bigger space. Like I housed my crested dragons when I had them um, in indoor pits that were sort of uh, 1. 1.2, 1. 1.2, I don't know, probably 600, 800 high. Um, and they'd use every ounce of that and just be jumping around all the time. You could throw flies in there and they'd jump up from the bottom of the pit to the top to get the fly. Like, they're just a very, very active lizard. And same with a lot of the smaller ones. And that's in part, I think, part of the problem with them as well is that because they're so small, people think they don't need space. Okay. Uh, and I'm def- I was definitely guilty of this when I started. They don't need space um, and you can house more in a tank because they're small. Um, and that can lead to problems as well. Yep. Um, whether it be direct aggression or indirect aggression to each other or indirect, you know, dominance to each other, I guess. But, um, yeah. So, yeah, but, um, I, I really boomed up in them cause I just found them such a cool group and like, um, to maintain them and breed them like breeding dragons isn't hard in the sense of actually getting them to lay eggs. Breeding dragons is hard in the sense of maintaining the offspring, um, making sure everything's ticking along nicely, making sure, um, you're not overburdening yourself. It's very easy to overburden yourself with dragons. Yep. Yeah, even I definitely feel that year to year, just breeding pygmy bearded dragons or whatever at the shop. Like it's, you know, before you know it, you've got 150 eggs to 200 eggs in the incubator and you're like, but these were only five female lizards that laid all of these. Like it's, it doesn't take much for dragons to get going once they're, once they're primed. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like, you know, I, uh, the, like my original pair of Jackies, I had them for three years before they bred. Um, and the reason being is that the original, I actually ended up going back shortly after I got that first pair, I ended up going back and buying a second male probably, I don't know, four months later, three months later. Um, and I always kept the one pair together and I was like, oh, this is before I knew better. I threw the extra male in and they all started kicking on and carrying on. So I took the extra male out and just housed them separately. Um, but that pair I kept together for three years. They female would always produce eggs. They were always duds and she'd always produce like 30 eggs a season. I then swapped out the male, put the secondary male in um, and they started breeding and producing fertile babies like or fertile eggs like no tomorrow. And I was easily getting 40 eggs a season from one pair. And that wasn't me intentionally trying to push them. Like, uh, you know, 
I wasn't going, oh, more eggs, more eggs, give me more eggs sort of thing. Like I was just maintaining them how I was and they were breeding in these, you know, huge numbers, like three or four clutches of 10 eggs, 12 eggs a clutch. Um, for those guys, you know, it happens. Yeah, it's not hard to do. And, you, you know, us as keepers, the, the dragons themselves would be on a really good wicket because we see them laying eggs. You're like, oh, I need to feed you more, which, of course, just starts up the next cycle of ovulation Absolutely. and all the rest of it. And then all of a sudden you get the next clutch and then, yeah, so so on and so forth. And that's your like instantaneous response. Like, and it's what you read online all the time. And it's just this whole thing where it's like, oh, your female's laid eggs, so you better feed her, like feed her up. Otherwise, she's going to be so resource poor, she might die, you know? And generally, you know, that in itself just promotes the next ovulation cycle. And then you've yep. got more, you got sperm uh, retention. Yep. And then bam, you've got a whole other instance of eggs. You don't always have to incubate those eggs, but obviously each clutch is a cost for that female. Yeah, something interesting that I do remember you telling me, oh, this is going back a few years now, is how you were talking about, this isn't even in the notes, but I just thought I'd bring it up, like responsible egg management. Mm, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I um, And Dragons is really what threw me on that trajectory. Um, and this is, one of, I guess, one of the factors that sort of led me to um, downsizing my dragon collection was that um, for a lot of my dragons, I just ended up beating tons of eggs. Um, and initially there were certain species, like for instance, the dark periphery, cause they were so uh, thin on the ground. Every egg was a winner. Like I just, if I got an egg, I should incubate it so that I can get it to somebody so that we can make sure they stay in captivity. Um, and that was my focus on that. Um, and it was at a point where I ended up with, I couldn't move them on cause no one wanted them. <laughs> That's why I ended up in captivity. <laughs> um, but I ended up with at one point where even I'd given some to uh, a mate of mine and he was going through a bit of a, a, sort of rejig of his collection and all these things sort of happen. I ended up with about 12 or 15 adult Tommy Roundheads and I was like, I don't need these. <laughs> you know? um, but with the whole responsible egg management side of thing, for things that I knew there was no demand for or I struggled to ever move offspring on for or other people were breeding in droves, I just binned eggs and, you know, like there's, you know, just whack them in the freezer, straight off their laid, knock them off and then throw them in the bin or if you want to feed them to something. Like... Yeah. Um, there was a year I was, and it, it fluctuates and sometimes you just don't pick it, which is totally fair. Um, like one year I bred pygmies, um, was a year where they were just oversaturated. And so you, you couldn't find good homes for them at all. And I, I got very disenfranchised with breeding pygmies. So I just didn't breed pygmies. And then the next year there was none available and everyone was wanting pygmy, <laughs> you know, yeah. and you can't pick it. Maybe, you know, people go, oh no, there's, um, you know, everyone ever bred last year, I'll just breed this year and fill in the gap and I'll be able to get them all gone, no problems. But it's just so variable. But um, yeah. basically just everything you hatch, you got to be prepared to move on and try and move on the best you can is my, my logic. Yeah. I don't, you know, you can screen everyone responsibly um, and sometimes something might fall through the crack. But if you don't do your due diligence, that's where it starts to annoy you. Um, yeah. So yeah, everything you hatch, you just got to be prepared to find the right home for. And so stuff that's, you know, I stopped relatively speaking, unless I knew people that I wanted to give them to, stopped breeding things like long nose dragons. Um, when I got really time poor just with my work stuff, I binned a hell of a lot of uh, central netted dragon eggs. Um, and it's not so much that I couldn't find homes for those. It's just that the time finding good homes for those was going to be too consuming on me. So I could easily just move them on to someone and they could, you know, kill them all in a week. Um, and I could get my money, but, you know, it wasn't, I wanted to take time, you know, actually selecting the person. So, yeah, it's just about, you know, making the call as to what you're breeding, um, whether there's a place for it and whether you can find a good home for it. 
Because you'll always be able to find a home, whether it's a good home or a crap home is a different question though. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's one thing a lot of people don't really think of is doing that with the eggs. Everyone just kind of gets eggs and incubates and gets all these hatches and they end up with all these hatches they've got nothing they don't know what to do with. So that's yeah. actually a good idea. Uh, yeah, it's one of those things that I kind of found in the, the python world. Like I kind of started breeding a few pythons for a couple of years there, and then realizing how hard it was to sell pythons because pythons were everywhere. I'm like, why yeah. am I why am I bothering doing this? You know, like if I want to breed something and have a bit of a bit of a kick, I should be doing something that's a little bit more left of field, and you know, hopefully there's somebody that wants it. And it's so much easier moving stuff on when when you do have that to responsible homes. And yeah, I mean, it's a flip side. Like I when I sort of you know say that to people, I always add the sort of. Uh, I guess added thought or additional thought that I still think it's we shouldn't be like pushing people out that are wanting to just have the fun of breeding. Like I think everyone yeah. that breeds animals, it's such an enjoyable experience. But you know, if it's your first time breeding or if you're new to it or you're not invested in making sure the hatchlings get it set up correctly, um, just can most of the eggs, you only keep a couple, you know? Mm, like yeah. I think and I'm I'm not trying to sign blame because I think the blame's more with people breeding commercial levels of certain species. But when someone has an accidental, you know, clutch produced, they're like, "Oh wow, you know, we didn't expect this. It's so exciting. Let's let's incubate it and see." You know, obviously they it's out of the left field, and they need to take responsible steps from there. But you know, throwing all the blame on them and saying they're the problem with all this backyard breeding isn't necessarily the case. We just got to equip them so that they can, you know, have the fun of hatching these eggs. You know, the enjoyment that we most of the people I assume that are listening or a lot of people have, you know, found or are seeking to find with also making sure they can responsibly move on the animals. Because, I mean, that's a big thing with this hobby is that, you know, the pressure we're having on us now is, um, I don't want to say like animal activism, but we're having, you know, a change in perceptions on animal welfare, animal rights. And a lot of people are making the right decision, but every outside perspective is having a say. And so if we look like a bunch of rat bags, that's going to reflect poorly on everyone. Yeah, definitely. Yep. It's a um, tough time, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah. Oh, absolutely. So without going too far down that rabbit hole potentially just yet, I just wanted to kind of understand how did you actually go about feeding that many hundreds of dragons? <laughs> <laughs> um, so I had I was cultivating a lot of stuff um, at home or trying to cultivate. Um, so I had um, Tyson, when he moved, very kindly gave me a bunch of his stuff that he was using because he was breeding primarily uh, bitter dragons, frillies, and diperifera. Oh, and a couple of tenophras he had as well. Um, he uh, gave me all his breeding equipment for his woodies. So I had these massive, and I don't even know the leaderage of them, but they were huge bins, like um, sort of storage moving bin things, like hard plastic. And I just had them filled with like tons and tons of woodies. Um, and every winter they'd get invaded by German cockroaches and I'd have to deal with that which is another reason why I got, got over them. Um, but also, you know, uh, I was cultivating black soldier fly at home. Yep. So they're fairly easy to cultivate at home, you know. Um, even things like, you know, you can even do house flies to a degree. Um, so I just throw something in the corner of the enclosure in a little cage, hit it attract some flies, then pupate, and then the animals would just eat the flies. Like I did that with the cresters in particular. Um, and then, yeah, buying crickets, lots of crickets. <laughs> probably very. I probably bought Karen at Biosupplies a new car. 
<laughs> you and me both. Yeah, thanks, Mitch. That's, a, that's an awesome one. Oh man, I, the one thing that I hate about cookers is like, as much as I love the chirping, moving into a set of apartments, I'm not looking forward to having that chirping in there with me. Not for my sake or my wife's sake, but just that kind of back of your mind whether somebody's going to be hating down on your your crickets. Yeah. Some people are totally unfazed by it and other people just have conniptions. They're like, I'm out, I'm done. Why did you do this to me? (laughs) Yeah. I'm kind of in two minds. I reckon I'm going to just try to breed like woodies for the larger animals and then just try to buy in small crickets that kind of haven't hit that that chirping stage just yet just to kind of keep the noise to a bit of a minimum. But anyway, I'll see how I go with that. Did, did you have to actually like – because you didn't breed centrals so much, did you? It was more more all these other species. I bred centrals a couple of times um, and, you know, being totally upfront, when I did breed, I only bred small numbers. Like I would have bred probably 20 a year. Yeah. Um, and that was mainly from <laughs> – <I>, my mum <laughs> and I really wanted to try to breed really colourful mutation ones. And every male we had was just useless. We had these three stunning females paid an absolute mint for them. Uh, this was very early on, you know, sort of thing. Um, and every male we ever got, one of them uh, had like a dud eye. So it's like head was deformed probably because it had been, you know, X number of generations inbred. Uh, another one ended up actually being uh, like hermaphroditic. So it uh, had hemipenes and you could lift up the tail and see the very evident hemipenes. And then it laid a clutch of eggs one day which explains why all these random, um, we had like, there was one time where there was just this clutch in the enclosure and we couldn't figure out where it had come from. We were like, what didn't she lay last week? Like what? (laughs) Um, And I'm like, oh, maybe she sat on more or something, but it was like, you know, another 15 eggs or something. I was like, Jesus, where was she putting them? Um, And it turned out that it was, yeah, the male, um, the the animal had, um, yeah, produced the, eggs as well so yeah it's now living with a family friend up in darwin um so yeah he moved up there and yeah just so i've got a couple of centrals but the the one pair that we've had for years now when they do breed um i generally speaking just move them onto a a pet shop i know that i I trust will move them on quite responsibly yeah Uh, and even then like if it's not there's years where i've just been the eggs um, and you know, it's not like we're chasing money from or anything. Probably costs more to raise them to that size than not. Yeah, um, yeah exactly. But yeah, so um, but yeah, we don't so, really breed them. It was mainly for everything else. And the problem with that is, is that everything else needs small food. So you can't just have large woodies. You've got to go through and sort them into small sizes and all that sort of stuff as well. I got really burnt out on small food animals recently. I think I was talking to you about this where mm-hmm. I had like, you know, the beaded geckos and the Latoria bicolor and the crittier and all these sorts of like little frogs and things like that getting around the place. And man, I got over buying like a full bulk of extra small crickets only for them to be small crickets within a week. And then all of a sudden yeah. they were useless to me and I had to raise them up to to be bigger so I could feed them to other animals. Yeah, that was nightmare. nightmare I to feel your pain. <laughs> <laughs> I even went through a stage of breeding fruit flies, wingless fruit flies, and that was going all well and true until they got too hot and then all of a sudden they all got their wings back and flew out of the tubs when I opened them. <laughs> I remember you mentioning that there was ages where I was trying to find wingless fruit flies. I was like, oh, this would be so cool. A bit Because the big thing I want to do as well and still try to do or still do, I should say, is, um, you know, give dietary variety. You know, I think it's important. Yeah. You know, we all have our staple foods that we rely on, whether it be woodies or crickets usually or 
Now, some people do, I tried and I still do for some species, keep on a lot of black soldier flies as their staples, um, just because they're cheap, you know, super healthy, relatively speaking. Um, and so, you know, there's certain things, but dietary variety is going to be the biggest thing. Are you able to kind of just elaborate on how you actually go about culturing your black soldier fly larvae? Oh, it's super easy. It's literally just like a compost. Um, so there's heaps of tutorials online where you can build pre, uh, pre-manufactured systems. Um, but the tutorials are pretty reasonable. You basically just build a bin, um, set up the drainage in a, not a specific way, but just so that there's a bit of drainage, um, have a exit tube, so a tube that the mature larvae can come out of. Um, and then the hardest part's probably just the trial and error in making sure that the um, composting unit internal component isn't too dry or too wet. If it's too wet, you have problems. If it's too dry, you have problems. And so you've got to kind of get a feel for that. But um, come summer, so spring, summer, and probably a slight bit into autumn, um, you just throw your, your kitchen scraps in there. They convert it, and you get, you know, I was getting half a ice cream tub of soldier flies out of that at its best. And um, even I even got to the point where I was going to my um, my dad's uh, coffee shop uh, around the corner from my parents' place. I was actually getting um, the bags of spent coffee grains and just throwing them into the the black soldier fly unit. Um, and they were just composting it all. Yep. But I stopped that after their dog got into it and shredded the bag of coffee through the backyard. <laughs> <laughs> that would have smelled um, brilliant. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, but like, you know, and that was, there's a lot of stuff online. There's a, for anyone interested, there's a, a YouTube tutorial by Costa, you know, Costa from Gardening Australia. He does one, how to make it at home. Yep. Um, and it's all stuff. And he basically, they give you the products from Bunnings to buy. So, and they've got a product list that you can download as well. So it's literally putting fish in a barrel. You just need the space. And in Sydney, um, you can only do it during the warmer parts of the year. I'm not going to lie. I have seen that video from Costa and it is something that I have been considering, especially, you know, moving out and bills are getting a little tighter and stuff like that. I thought during the warmer months that that might be something handy, in particular for dragons. Like my frill neck consumes a lot of food. So that might be kind of good for him to, you know, have something else that's a little bit more free. And, you know, you're doing your part too by composting. So it's mm. kind of a win-win really. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like I, um, you know, I was keeping Jackie's pretty much on those for ages. Burns, you can keep Burns dragons on that as a staple. Um uh, beardies, if your beardie likes black soldier fly, um, like central beardie, it's, you know, you've got to regulate how much you give them because they'll gorge themselves if they're really into it and then just spew it back up. Yeah. So, you know, it's one of those things that, um, yeah, there's a few things that won't take them. There's a few things. So I find netted dragons that can be hit and miss between individuals. Um, central netted, that is. Western netted refused them when I kept Western netted. Um, they absolutely despise them. Uh, long nose like them, diaper for dragons like them. Like it just comes down to the individuals and it can be quite variable, but they're an excellent, like they're cheap. Buying them in bulk, you can get a kilo for like 40 bucks um, and they're all sustainably produced. So they're actually quite a good feeder as long as you can make your way through that volume and you can, um, yeah, you can make your way through that volume and your animals that eat them. How do you find your skinks and varanids and stuff like them? Uh, depends on the animal. Uh, Varanids are very hit and miss. I've had a quarter eat them. I've had Barichi eat them, baby Barichi. Um, I don't think my King Orem have ever touched them. Uh, I'm trying to think what else. Yeah, that's probably most of them. Varanids are a bit hit and miss, and it depends again on the skinks. So I, I have panther skinks, and they eat them. Um, 
Depressor, I've never seen eat them. So I've got Depressor, they've never, I've never seen them eat them. Geckos won't touch them. I've never had a gecko. I can recall eating one. Yeah. Um, I've tried a few times, but they just don't seem interested. Um, oh, just on dragons that will adore them. Uh, Angleheads. Angleheads will absolutely adore them. Um, Boyds can be hit and miss. But yeah, I just I find they're such a good staple. It's one of those things where you can just sort of, you know, you've got to find your individual animal. Like each animal is different. There's yeah. broad trends across species, but you just find what your individual animal is into. Yeah, there's easy them. ways to do that. Most pet shops sell them these days too, so you can kind of get a couple of little sample tubs and see if they like them before you go setting up a elaborate black soldier flower farm at home. Exactly, yeah. And I mean, I should say as well that like the sample tubs are quite modestly priced for what you get in most places. Um, and you can also, yeah, the soldier fire farm when you set it up is pretty cheap. Yeah. Uh, it's something that I want to do as well as a, a little earthworm farm, especially having boids and stuff like that like it's just yeah i've got a little earthworm farm going now it's going awesome <laughs> your son hasn't been getting into it too much no every time we go to the front he loves it they've got to open it up and he sees all the worms and no it's good it's, it's good just to do something with all the the food scraps as well because usually they just end up in the bin so yeah better than landfill you know, kind of, yeah that's right you're kind of doing your part so yeah that's it that's really cool i mean i absolutely hate breeding wood roaches but it just seems to be an absolute necessity you haven't de- developed any sort of allergic reactions or anything to them yet? No, but I, uh, so I remember speaking to you and you started having your, your reactions develop. And then uh, another friend of mine as well um, started developing reactions quite seriously and actually ended up going into, I think it was anaphylaxis. Like he had some serious reaction and needed to go to hospital because he just couldn't breathe. Um, and so I got very, you know, I had a lengthy discussion with him about it. And so he started wearing like PPE, just doing cleaning now. So he wears yep. like a dust mask to clean his enclosures, wears dust mask cleaning his invertebrates. Like he doesn't, you know, anything that he thinks might be, you know, triggering for his allergies, he just doesn't deal with now. Um, and it was one of those things I started implementing after that, after I had that conversation, because I was like, you know, it was at the time where silicosis was all through the news. Like all these tradies were getting silicosis from working in unsafe conditions now, I'm sifting sand. That was what I was using as a, a primary substrate all the time, breathing in all these fine sand particles. And I was just kind of like, oh, I've got to watch myself. You know, I'm going to be kicking around for at least another, hopefully, at least at that point, 60 years. Like, you know. Okay. So, um, yeah, I started. And I mean, admittedly, I've gotten sloppy lately. lately. As you get more busy, you start cutting corners. Um, but I didn't put on, uh, I haven't put on PPE recently, but I, I was for a very long time, especially with invertebrate cleaning, using it very diligently. Yeah, that's something that I definitely implemented because I remember I was <laughs> I cleaned out a woody tub one night and no joke, I was like lying in bed, like wheezing as if I had emphysema, like it was that bad and my, my airways were that restricted. I was about a minute away from calling an ambo with my wife and I was like, this is all just because of these bloody wood roaches downstairs. And then I was just like, no, nah, bugger it. I went out and bought like a, you know, a decent actual dust mask with cartridges and stuff on it. And ever since doing that, I don't have those issues. I don't sneeze. I don't do anything. You know, I don't have any sort of those sort of responses now. And and those masks are really good for the money that you actually pay for them and the amount of crud that it keeps out of your nose and your airways. And I use it for all sorts, as you say, cleaning enclosures, even when I'm doing these foam backgrounds because I've got a, a vapor mask thing on there as well or a cartridge, then you don't get all those vapor fumes up your nose and yeah. God knows what that's causing. You know, so it's all, all win-win really to protect yourself and, it is one of those hobbies where you do have to protect yourself a little bit. No, absolutely. Especially people that are, you know, if you're in it for a long time, it's just that slow, sustained exposure that eventually gets you, you know? 
Yeah. Um, like I remember talking to Rob about it when I first got a couple of monitors off him and my my allergies were starting to kind of creep up there with him. And then I, I remember asking him, and I was like, you yeah, know, what, what do you do? Like, are you allergic to these things as well? He's like, oh, I'm horribly allergic. I just eat a whole handful of antihistamines and get on with it. <laughs> I was like, oh. <laughs> Such a Rob response. But <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I was lucky I never developed them because I never really worked with Woody, so I was always just crickets. I've heard of people getting it with crickets too, though. Yeah. Not not as commonly as wood roaches, but I have heard of some people not being able to deal with crickets. Yeah, it's yeah. I'm, I'm, <clears throat> I think I'll have to pay attention to that, I think. I might have to go out and get a mask, I think. I'm pretty lucky with crickets. So I can pretty much generally, when I'm working with those, I can get away without the dust mask, but there is that yeah. little thought in the back of my mind going, what are you doing? You should probably be putting that on just in case, you know, you don't know what you're going to have that sort of reaction to. But anyway, allergies and getting old, hey? Exactly. <laughs> so, Mitch, we kind of touched on like how your your dragon obsession kind of came about. I know within the last kind of few recent years, you've almost had a bit of a change of scenery there. Did you did you get a little bit burnt out on dragons eventually? Oh, absolutely. Like I, um, dragons just ended up taking like the maintenance of a large collection of dragons, especially breeding them. Like anyone that's bred animals will know that you know it's fairly relatively speaking it's fairly easy to maintain the adults it's when you've got the adults and the the babies um where it starts to become a lot more taxing on you both mentally physically emotionally um and so it was one of those things where and financially financially of course um and so it was one of those things where i just started to you know lose enjoyment with them um you know there's a lot of species and like i'd you know, chased up everything I could. Like I ended up getting Western netted dragons, which, you know, only pop up for sale realistically every couple of years, um, which took me a lot of effort to get. Um, and I got, you know, I'm quite happy to say I got some that were in pretty bad nick when I got them. Um, and they'd been sold to a pet shop and I got them through that pet shop uh, in Victoria where they could purchase them. Um, and yeah, they just weren't in good nick, persevered with them. Western netted dragons are, from my experience and from people I've spoken to, uh, something that I, I think is a pretty tricky thing to keep in captivity. Um, so I had a chat with Chris Cupper and uh, another friend of mine that keeps them and some people have worked with them. And some seem to be bulletproof. And then other ones, the females just seem to be some of the most fragile things in the world. And I got probably three generations into my Western netted with the female dying at about 18 months each time. Wow. Um, so I breed them, get babies, the female would eventually die. I'd get a new female from that clutch, grow it up. It'd die after having a clutch. And I just, you know, it's it's pretty taxing. You're like, obviously I'm doing something wrong or maybe maybe I'm not, who knows, but obviously I'm, something's not going right. But just having that on you really sort of weighed on me. So I wasn't interested in keeping particularly them anymore. And that sort of dawned on me with, uh, you know, a lot of other things I just wasn't enjoying because I was keeping them, you know, in such large numbers. I wanted to move things into bigger enclosures. Some things I'd always had in pretty big enclosures, like I've got my long nose have always been in a sort of three foot by two and a half foot enclosure by two and a half foot. Um, and I've always been happy with that. But as you, as I started downsizing, I started seeing all this new space in my collection popping up, like space physically, I mean. And I had to jump on my own toes and stop me going, oh, I can put that in there. Um, and allowed me to really shift things into bigger enclosures. And then after I was much more comfortable where things were, um, it meant that I could then, uh, you know, declutter a bit, 
you know, maximize space, get bigger enclosures for everything. And then, yeah, I did start diversifying out. But it was, it was 100% a bit of a burnout with them. And I, I kind of wanted to pull the pin um, at the right time before it became a problem for me. Yeah. Um, which I think I did. You know, I moved a lot on. Like I moved, I just, you know, I found people I was quite happy and, you know, I thought we're going to be responsible with them. There's a lot of things that I had that, you know, like I had an adult breeding group of uh, red barred dragons. So mm. I had, I think it was two males, three, four females, um, you know, which is, you know, the fact that if you can find a pair of red barred dragons nowadays, you're doing yourself an absolute major impressive fact, like feet, you know what I mean? Yeah. It's so thin on the ground. The guy I sold them to still has them. He just hasn't been able to breed them. Um, but it's just one of those things where I sort of moved on all these big breeding groups I had. Because the other thing is when you've got heaps of animals in these breeding situations, you've always got that, that impact on the animals as well. They're always going to be competing, whether it's a male, you know, trying to attack a female to mate, or not attack, but, you know, putting pressure on a female to mate or they're fighting over food. Um, and so it just becomes all these little micromanagement things. And, you know, when a big collection is going smoothly, very easy to manage. When something starts to fall out of place, that starts making it a lot harder. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Starts to crumble away after there. I know I've definitely felt burnt out a couple of times with certain animals and stuff. And my allergies was probably the biggest thing that killed me with those wood roaches until I kind of figured it out and, and all the rest of it. But yeah, I got burnt out with monitors for a little bit there um, or having a fair few monitors around. So, um, I mean, I've, that's kind of like your deciding factor as to why to change up your collection a little bit. But can we have like a little bit of an overview of what your collection looks like these days? Because I think you're kind of similar to myself where nowadays you've kind of got like a little bit of everything and you like to kind of have that little bit of spice and variety in your life now. Yeah, yeah, oh, absolutely. I mean, I've always, I probably, dragons were what I sort of presented to everyone the most. That's what everyone familiarized me with or like, you know, thought I was about, I should say. But I, I've definitely always had a bit of variety here and there, like, well, you know, I, I kept thick tails years ago um, and then got rid of them because I thought they were the most boring animals in the world. And it's because I was just keeping them in a fish tank with sand and a water bowl. <laughs> um, while, you know, I moved them into a three-foot tank with, you know, live plants and things like that. And suddenly, like, I ended up getting some again um, from a herb society. They were getting rehomed. Um, and, yeah, I um, ended up getting them again and found them the most enjoyable thing just because it was how I was keeping them. Um, but I've always, I've always kept a, a bit of diversity, but nowadays it's definitely, yeah, moved into, I've got, um, I've had Cunningham skinks for like five, six years now. Um, and I've always just liked them. I've always found them, you know, a really charismatic, fun little species. So, um, I ended up getting King skinks as well. Um, so I quite like the King skinks. Um, and then I ended up, yeah, getting some depressor. So, um, ended up getting depressor. Uh, so I ended up getting a few agurnia. I kept a few different small skinks. So I got a few uh, lyophilus species. So I've got Inonata and um, uh, Modesta. So Inonata being the desert skinks and then Modesta being the eastern range rock skink, uh, which is another one that's very funny as well when you talk to the old school skink keepers. Modesta were near impossible to get 10 years ago. And now everyone that has Modesta cringes when they find babies in the enclosure because they're like, now how am I going to get rid of them? <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I keep my Modesta in an outdoor pit. Um, and I remember walking out and seeing that baby sitting on the tile. And I was like, I won't swear, but there was an, a, a profanity said. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I was like, uh. So. Um, it's funny how things like come and go in the hobby. Like they'll be abundant for a couple of years and then another five years, you'll, they're so hard to find. Mm -hmm. but, Absolutely. 
that was like uh, I got burnt out kind of doing knobtail geckos for a fair while there. And, you know, all of a sudden it got to the point where you couldn't couldn't get rid of them. And this and year now. when I, this year I was trying to find them for the shop and finding it near impossible <laughs> to get any. And I'm like, this is just ridiculous. It's just a knobtail yeah. gecko. It shouldn't be this hard. But, you know. As I said, it's funny you say that with nobbies. I had the same thing with um, Wheeler. Like I, I keep a few nobbies as well, species and nobby. Uh, nobbies, knob tails. You know, I also keep nobby dragons, but different thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I've just been binning Wheeler eggs left, right, and center. I probably incubate one clutch a season. And it's usually because someone's asked me for them. And then when they eventually get around to saying, hey, do you want these Wheeler eyes? They say no, and I have to deal with advertising them. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, I've just been bidding them willy-nilly. Like, as long as the females are in good health and the animals are in good health, if they lay eggs, I just toss them because I, I don't see, you know, for me at least, value in breeding them. Other people certainly do and enjoy it, but... That was oh. actually one of the species that when I went to the expo, I was like, if I find a pair of wheeler I'm, like, down to get some wheeler Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> I haven't seen them around too much. No, like. they, they were one of those species that when I first started getting into nobbies, I was, like, all about them and then... I didn't have great success with them, but they're one of those animals that I'd love to just set up in like a mad bioactive arid setup and just do them justice in that something like that, you know? So my Wheeler Eye, I ended up getting a pair from an expo and then I sold them to someone. And then about 12 months later, they were like, oh, I'm going to be getting out of my collection. Would you like to buy some of my animals? I'm looking at trying to move them on in bulk, pretty cheap. Um, And I was like, oh, yeah, what you got? And then that's where I got advertised the depressor. And I was like, oh, yeah, I'll take some depressor for sure. I've, you know, wanted to keep them for a while. Uh, it was from a fairly reputable person. So I was like, yep, no problems there. Um, and I was quite happy to go forward with it. And they're like, oh, if you're going to take the depressor, you're going to have to take all these hatchling wheeler eye from your pair. I've already sold the adult <laughs> breeders. <laughs> We're going to take these six hatchlings as well. And I was like, oh. Yeah, I, like, I don't even care if I wouldn't breed something like that. I think they're just such a fantastic animal. And I think they they're completely underrated. Cool. Like as far as nobbies go, you know, you always get people looking for smooth knobtails and the big the big rough rough knobtails, but not really the small roughies. So I mean it's one of those things like Wheeler I, as you guys probably are aware, went through a split twelve ish months ago. Yep. Um and Synctus is the one that pretty much predominates like is predominant across the hobby. Um there's probably a few true Wheeler I there. Um, and there's definitely some in WA, so there's that guy, I don't know his name, sorry, but the one that's got the Albino, he hatched out the Albino. Yeah, I saw that. I didn't, didn't even see that. There you go. Yeah. But it'll be one of those things where it's like when true Wheeler I start hitting the East Coast, is there going to be this sudden fad in true Wheeler I, even though like to the everyday punter and most people, they look pretty similar. Like, do you really care that much of a difference? <laughs> uh, like, yeah. So it'll just be interesting. But you're right, inherently, like as a species, they are very fun. Yeah. Um, if you want some wheeler eye, I'll sort you out this season. Please take them. <laughs> Don't set me up for <laughs> No, no, no. no. I'd take them. If you're offering, I'll take them. I'll find somewhere. I'll hide them under the bed for my wife. <laughs> Once I run out of room. No, no, I absolutely love those little geckos. And that's one thing that I was on the hunt for pretty hard, actually. Between them and Depressor, but I think hopefully you're going to plan. I think I might be able to be doing a trade with somebody with Depressor this year. So, Oh, excellent. Good stuff. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully. But, yeah, keep me in mind too about those because no. I think that's that's pretty much like the one skink to to rule them all for me. It's just like the Gil and I version of a skink. So it's right yeah, up my wheelhouse. The, the, the true brown Depressor, the, yep. the most yep. Yep, good, the best of the Depressor complex. The 100% best. <laughs> bugger, those, 
Bugger those brick red ones. They're cool, but they're not as cool <laughs> as these little brown turds that climb into trees. <laughs> oh, the, the little brown ones, like I, I had a friend that had uh, Epsosolus and also True Depressor or real like Depressor Depressor. Um, and I've only ever had Depressor Depressor. And when you see Epsosolus, they're just such big, chuggy nugget of a things. Like they just, and the heads look funny compared to the, the like actual Depressor. And so it's kind of like, when you see them together, like they look cool in photos, but I just, oh, I love the actual depressor. That's so much more impressive, especially when they get silver, when they've got that beautiful silver color to them. They're so cool. Does that seem to be kind of like a seasonal shift that you find with them? Um, that they get that color? Potentially. So mine, I've always had one that's had a more prominent sort of, so one of my females has much more silver on sort of her, her head and her neck and sort of upper shoulders. Um, but recently while I was doing a winter health check, I actually, so I've got like a, a little rock pile in there for them. Um, and I, I pulled them all out to have a look and she was like, just stunning. Like I took a photo and put it on, like took a photo of it and put it online and it just didn't capture how amazing she looked um, in that color. And yeah, it, it could be seasonal, but the other thing that I think might've contributed to it was I've actually put a, a metal halide on them. So oh, okay. just a, you know, a more bright white, high intensity sort of, light mm. um and i wonder if that's contributed as well um you know there's no way of exactly knowing but it could be either of the two if not something else i think that's something that's really underused in uh captive husbandry is actual natural daylighting for a lot of these animals like regardless whether you got plants or any of that garbage in there either not garbage i'm a bioactive fan so um but you know like it's it's about actually providing different sort of light spectrums for the guys that you're keeping you know and, and things like those 6500 kelvin lights or you know those really high white lights they're actually really good for things like pupil dilation and stuff in the animals as well so it's uh well, as I say, like I've um, one of the guys that so there's a, another keeper that's very much into uh, dragon lizards. His name's Mark Walker. Um, if you're on the Gamut page, the Australian Gamut page, you probably see him comment quite a lot. Um, but I've been having chats with Mark about a Gamut husbandry when I was really into them. Um, and one of the things you know he pointed out, and we had a big discussion about, was that visual light. And you know, it was something he thought was you know contributing to a lot of the success. I was probably having and breeding some species that are, are less commonly bred or like much harder to get consistent breeding out of. Um, and it's because my, the main room I had them in or have them in at my parents um, is filled with skylights. So I get natural daylight, you know, and I've always kept them under that sort of natural daylight cycle um, for the entire time I've kept them. And, you know, definitely, you know, that photo period sort of, and like circadian rhythms as a whole, are very much tightly linked with what most people sort of coin as stress hormones. So it wouldn't surprise me if there's some sort of, you know, and those stress hormones, uh, at least I've seen an example of it with elephants where they're very tied with reproduction. So it wouldn't surprise me if the, you know, those really stable light cycles and natural light cycles and that daily uptick and downtick have a, a really important role in regulating the health and well-being of animals beyond just a, you know, super intensity UV 10.0 coming on during the day for 12 hours or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It's also, I actually, I want to play around with UV a little bit more and not actually just put it on for that long. I want to kind of put it on for different time cycles. So it's almost, you know, three hours on, three hours off, three hours on, three hours off sort of thing, just to kind of give the animal an opportunity to have that downtime in between. I think a lot of people actually overcook their animals in UV as well. Oh, hundred percent. And I, I think I was guilty of doing that with um, when Arcadia first came out in Australia. So probably one of the most well-known brands of um, T5 lighting. 
Um, so first it was ZooMed that had products here and they had this really stupid fitting that no one liked and was completely unusable and expensive and horrible. Um, and then Arcadia came out and brought out what is that modern sort of rebranded version of a hydroponic fitting. Yep. Um, and that's where it sort of game changed here in Australia with so many people jumping on board with T5. And the problem was is that a lot of people here just knew it was the best and could see these changes in the animal, but they were all going, oh, more UV is better and just putting 14.0s in like, you know, 45 centimetre tanks with, you know, bugger all cover. And I 100% was cooking the crap out of some of my animals, you know, like I regret even like beyond that, before I was using T5s, I was using uh, mercury vapors. And the person that um, I was getting them off was telling me, them, you know, they were this product, they just had them rebranded, it was totally fine blah, blah, blah. And when I ended up actually buying a UV meter, it was like off the charts and it made me think, oh my God, is there UVC under this? Like, you know, is it short wavelength UVB? That's also not good for animals. You know, I'm sticking my hands under these as well, talking about PPE and protection, you know, dealing with this UV light. Like it's all damaging radiation and here we are keeping animals under it for 12 hours a day, if not longer sometimes, or putting our hands under it and getting, you know, exposure, which isn't healthy. Yeah, it's kind of crazy when you think about it like that, isn't it? I've been meaning to bring my UVB meter home from work for a little while now or, or borrowing the one from work actually just to kind of test out some globes. So, I mean, apart from like we've done a lot of lizard talk, I know that you actually keep a lot of snakes these days as well, don't you? Yeah, not not tons. Um, I mean, it depends how you define a lot, I guess. Um, so, yeah, I've had uh, a carpet python now, a diamond for five ish years, I think, maybe longer. Um, I've got a children's python that uh, I've had for a while now as well. That's your uh, mom's, isn't it? Yeah, that's the one that's sort of become mom's now. <laughs> yeah. uh, she ended up, I, I couldn't figure out a name, and she just ended up naming it, and the name stuck. And yeah, so it's Mr. Python. Um, <laughs> so yeah, nice that, um, I quite recently, uh, so I've, I've got quite a few brown trees as well, which I'm happy to talk about. They're one of my favorite snakes. Mm. Um, I've got uh, a rough scale. Um, awesome. so yeah, I've got a rough scale. I, it was quite funny actually. I'd, um, spoken to someone, I got it from a zoo. I'd spoken to someone at that zoo about it and they're like, oh, we've got all these baby roughies that we're, you know, we're going to keep a couple for ourselves just so we can top up our display in case one of our, you know, animals dies. And you know, we've got a few other zoos that are interested in blah, blah, blah. And then COVID came around and zoos were just offloading all the spare animals. So I was like, oh, finally, I can get one of those roughies two and a half years later. Because <laughs> <laughs> um, they were like, oh, we might be able to sort you out for one. And, yeah, nothing ever came of it. And then, yeah, two and a half years later, I ended up getting this roughie. So I was quite happy with that. Um, and then I also have a single disease banded snake. That's so, nice. Yeah. So that's Dennis. Dennis the disease. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, I love how you got, like, you got heaps of funny names and stuff for a lot of your... A lot of you guys like don't you have felicity the felicipodia and stuff as well yeah so it's felicity and felix the felicipoda <laughs> not quite a cat but you know same sort of thing uh, <laughs> um what else do i have i got uh crumple stiltskin that was my oh crumple he unfortunately died but that was my original jackie dragon um so that was crumple stiltskin um I'm trying to think of other names. Um, one of my barichis called Big Unit because it was just massive when I got it. Like it was so um, So yeah, it was Big Unit. Um, yeah, they're all. Uh, I named uh, my king skinks are named after the Wiggles. Uh, so <laughs> the, the female is uh, like the new Wiggles. Sorry for anyone that's a fan of the old Wiggles. Um, but I yeah, the female's like a, got a yellow color to her, so she's Emma. 
Um, and then the other one's just called Lockie because that was who was married to her at the time. So Emma <laughs> Lockie. Um, so yeah, um, yeah. What other names I've got? Uh, my one of my, my female sanguine is called Minnie Minnie Mouse because uh, <laughs> she loves mice. So you know, it keeps entertaining. <laughs> <laughs> I think you got to have a few names kicking around, yeah. you know, just for a bit of a laugh or whatever like that. Like I've got mm. Severus Snake. Um, what else? I don't even know what else I've got, but yeah, Severus Snake was one of my ones. That my first one was called Dexter. Dexter, I like it. Yeah, that was a good TV show, actually. Oh, I love that. Well, show. I tried rewatching it recently, and we got like three and a half seasons in, and then stopped. You've now re-motivated me to finish it. <laughs> there you go. You know <laughs> what you're doing do later. <laughs> Oh, you got too much time on your your hands now, Jason. Oh, I wouldn't say too much, mate. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's cool. Um, what do you think of the ruffies? I mean, ruffies are definitely one of mine and Jason's favourite yeah. python species. Them and green tree pythons are my favourite, probably on par with each other, I reckon. So I um, I, I really like them. I've I was very cautious and am very cautious not to try and get into like a, a snake rabbit hole, like I was with <laughs> um. Dragons. Dragons, yeah. And I mean a rabbit hole in general. Like, you know, I my my position has definitely changed through time. I was, you know, living at home. I didn't have, you know, the bills I have now to pay. Um uh and I, I didn't have a long term partner. So, you know, it was one of those things where the time commitment wasn't there. Uh like I could just throw my time, my spare time into staying up all night. And there was like heaps of days I'd finish working, come home and then clean animal tanks until midnight and go to bed and you know, it just became all encompassing. Um, and so I don't want to get to that with snakes because I think snakes uh, mentally a lot more people can uh, justify cutting corners at the sake of welfare. Uh, and I, I would, well, not, yeah, I guess welfare is the right term, but you know what I mean? Like we're all familiar with the idea of a rack. Um, and, you know, I still use racks. I know J- uh, Luke, sorry, not Jason. Uh, Luke, you still got racks. I'm trying to move away from my racks and obviously converting what I have in racks is taking time. You know, yep. No shame if you are trying to move away from it. Um, but it's one of those things where when you've got all the spare rack space, it's very easy to just suddenly be like, oh, I can throw another python in here. I can collect it. Yep. And so I was very methodical in what I wanted to choose as a, another python. I really like my diamond. Um, you know, it's a beautiful, sentimental animal, but I did want something a bit different, and I thought a roughy was going to be in that category. I also thought water python, but I really, you know, they're stunning and they're super Spice. cool, but they're also psychotic, so... They're assholes. <laughs> They're all assholes. <laughs> I even just had a couple of mine out the other day, just giving him a bit of a health check, and they wanted nothing but flesh. I was like, "Man, you guys are nothing like your counterparts at Fog Dam. Why can't you be like those guys?" <laughs> yeah, I love them to bits, but Jesus, they are—they are grumpy snakes, that's for sure. So yeah, but it, it came out to yeah, the roughy came on top, and then yeah, as I said, the, I was—I well, saw the ad go up from one of the herb societies saying that. The zoo was interested in moving them on. And I was like, sweet, time to grab this ruffy. Um, and they're everything I expected them to be. You know, they're just this super, you know, I find them a lot more interesting than a lot of other pythons I've seen. You know, I've got it in a, my first attempt at making a custom background. So a lot of my enclosures just have universal rock um, or like shitty background. Oh, I shouldn't say that. Oh, I said it. Um, crappy backgrounds I've bought off. Um, you can swear, dude. Oh, okay, good. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, like, yeah, fuck absolute. it. Just go for it. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Yeah, cool. Yeah. So I've got this like um, ages ago, I helped someone out and they had this like, uh, you know, massive tank. It was like four by four and a half by 1.5 deep. So it must be a tank. And it had this super shit, like I'm telling, saying horrendous background of just like spray foam can that hadn't been carved or anything. They just sprayed it with paint. 
Um, and so I was like, okay, they gave it to me for free for helping them move something. So had that and been using it since. But I've had backgrounds and everything, but it was my first attempt at making one for this roughy enclosure. Um, and it doesn't look realistic at all. Totally looks fake as, but I'm really impressed with how it turned out. <laughs> Knowing right. my artistic abilities, I was like, oh, wow, this is so much more realistic than I thought it was going to be. Still There's not nothing, realistic, but... <laughs> nothing wrong with that, man. If you'd like it and if you're happy with it, why not rock it? You know, like there's no harm in that whatsoever. I have to ask, did you go down like the grout method? I did go down the grout method. So yep. um, it was before I was aware of tile pointing. Uh, though I am keen to try tile pointing. Um, but I watched the... Um, oh, geez, what's his name? Natural Herbkeeper. I watched Natural Herbkeeper yep. video yep. for it. Um, and a lot of the, the little you know, bits of advice I gave was super cool, like super heavy. Yeah. Um, and so it really helped just add a bit of detail to it. Um, but I was also in the circumstance where I was also, I would say, impatient and space poor for where I was keeping it. So I rushed it, which probably took away from how it looked in the long run. Um, and also I wanted to get the roughy out of the tub I had it in. So I had it in a quarantine tub. And by the time it had finished quarantine, I was happy to then... Move it, or I wanted to move it into this enclosure and go from there. Um, but yeah, no, um, I've actually got an enclosure in the works now. Uh, with I'm, I'm pretty tired poor at the moment, but uh, with all the time I have, I hope to finish it. Um, and I'm going to use the tile pointing method. So, oh, that's cool. Crack. Yeah, you have to let us know how you go on that. I mean, obviously, I'm a big fan of it, and Jason's potentially going to use it at some point or another. So, soon. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't sure if you're going to go grout or not. That's why I said at some point. So, yeah, I know. The that, thing um, that got me with grout is the weight. Like I, the enclosure I made for the roughy, it's not full grown yet, but it's in a um, three foot by two foot by 1.5, one of the melamine reptile ones. Yep. Um, and after I grouted that up, I think I did three layers and it was impossibly heavy to move. Yeah. <laughs> like it just adds up so quickly. And I don't know, I, I would like, all it's trade-off you know i would like all that intricacy and design and you know structure and all that stuff that you can get with grout but i also kind of need it to be flexible so i can move it you know yeah my animals are i don't think and obviously moving it i did crack it as well which i think kind of looks okay it, it looks naturalistic ish but it's um yeah not not great <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it happens. Like that, that, that's the one thing that kind of made me turn off grout. Like, not that I really used it all that much. I did use a little bit of like um, cement, making some termite mounds at one point or another. Um, but the amount that it cracked up, I was just like, oh, I just don't want to use any like sort of concrete based or cement based sort of products. Like, it just seems like it's a little bit too fragile for, for my likings. And then when I got introduced to the tile pointing and feeling how actual flexible it could be and it was a little bit rubberized and stuff, I was like, man, this. This might be the go, and yeah, so far so good. You know, I'm really, really, really lucky that I, I got onto that. Actually, one thing I did notice in my Tristus enclosure a couple of days ago is I saw this looked like a little pile of snow, <laughs> and I was like, this is a little bit weird. And I looked up underneath the ledge, and there must have been like a little gap in it. And I think Cricket's man had been able to bore in through a hole. So I don't know if the cricket's still in the background, but I got a little bit of the tile pointing out and just patched that quickly just to make sure <laughs> no one else is going in after it. But yeah, that's one that thing you gotta be careful. Crickets. Yeah, oh, yes. say, crickets behind backgrounds or woodies behind backgrounds are yep. the worst. <laughs> that was one thing that killed me with the universal rock backgrounds. As tight as they fit, they'd still find a little way to get into there. And I, I remember sliding some of my enclosures out and there was like a hundred woodies behind it. And I'm like the animals mustn't have been eating for ages. They're all just hiding behind <laughs> the background. But 
Yeah. I do like those universal rock backgrounds. Actually, the ones for the Exoterras are pretty good because they're pretty snug fitting. Mm, I um, So a lot of my tanks early on were Reptile 1 because I um, was trying to, you know, it was easier for me to get Reptile 1 ones. And I got quite a few Mew as well. Um, and there's trade-offs. Like some, there's elements of each that I like more than the others. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that is frustrating is that the uh, Reptile 1 tanks are slightly... Uh, a slightly different shape, like the dimensions are just slightly off the internal dimensions, I should say. Yeah. So those backgrounds don't fit snug in, so you've got to trim them down. And then you end up taking a too big a trim out and you've got to silicone it back in and it all looks kind of cruddy. And... But they are good backgrounds. I really do like them. Yeah, they are. Yeah. I mean, if you're getting into pros and cons about those tanks, I do like Reptile One's mesh on top of their tanks. Yes, I find that it's actually properly sturdy. Um, compared to the Exoterra, but I hate those those uh, like light vents or whatever they are <laughs> yeah, on the top, the dials, the cord dials. Oh, they get in the way for so many like heat domes and light fixtures and stuff on top of them. Yeah, I could go into that all day. I always talk about it with customers. I'm like, here's your pros for Exoterra, here's your pros for Reptile One, and here's get your pet right somewhere in the middle. You know, so well, yeah, that tank I mentioned that I'm building earlier is actually one of those new get your pet right ones. Um, one of the uh, not dwarf, um, the largest of the sizes they're doing now. The uh, it's not standard dimensions, but it's like you know two foot by one and a half by one and a half or something. Yeah, he kind of has some odd sizes in there, which is it's good to have those kind of you know differing kind of factors and stuff there. I think it's more along the lines of some of those old URS enclosures and stuff. He's kind of got like those eighty centimeter long enclosures and things like that. But yeah, I've seen those ones. He's coming out with some good stuff these days. Actually, one of my favorite enclosures that he's done is that little, I don't know what it is. It's like it's like a little one that's, I think it's 45 long by 30 deep. Oh, no, by 28 deep by 30 tall. Mm. Yeah, so, it's only good for like small species, but it's got one single big swim, swing door, but it's got a nice little latch on it. Like the mesh is really solid on the top. Like they're quite little, good, good little enclosures. If I didn't have so many exoterras, I probably would have got into some of those actually. Mm. I was going to say, we, those ones you've got, we, we're using at the moment for a young children's python that we're growing up and a um, bunch of baby green tree frogs. And it's working really well. They're really nice dimensions. Like you can get a, a UV, like a short, um, one of those, I can't remember the brand, like the name of them, but the, like the one foot UVs on top quite comfortably and then a dome light as well. So it all just yep. works out quite nicely with the dimension and space you've got there. And it's all mesh and it's not stupid. It doesn't have any weird plasticky bits. Yeah. Yeah, that definitely makes it a little bit better. Have you tried out his like little 30 centimeter UVB fittings? I think that's, yeah, yeah. So I've got those. The, they're the ones with the blue mesh on the, or the blue peely thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah, that blue peely thing that I knew all about. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I got one. I'm looking, I'm going, is this supposed to come off? And I'm like, peeled. I'm like, yeah, it is. <laughs> I, just <peeled> it off. <laughs> I think I warned you about that. I was like, make sure to I think take you it did. off. So <laughs> just as a heads up for anyone that does get those fittings and they do have that blue peel, peel it off because it like takes out all the UV. It's useless without yeah. it. It just absorbs it all. So um, yeah, 100% please, please take it off. <laughs> Um, like me, you know, and if you leave it on, it bakes onto the reflector, and then the reflector screws. <laughs> so they're a good fitting, um, but no, they, they are really good. And like, obviously, it's for protection and transit, so it doesn't get damaged. But um, yeah, but yeah, it's just one of those things. I was like, oh, 2020 hindsight. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah no, I, I like them. They're not bad at all. I had a customer come back to me and it's like, why is my tank blue? <laughs> like It's like reflecting blue colors and stuff into their tank. And I'm like, man, you should have peeled it off. I'm pretty sure I told you. But yeah, it's one of those things. So do, do you actually have like a favorite species that you work with? I know you're pretty fond of your brown tree snakes, but is there somebody else in the group that you, you really so like? My, it's, you know, it's always hard to pick a favorite, I guess, but like my absolute, like my pride and joy is, per se, are my Sandgarners and my Rosenbergs. Um, so I, I really, really like, I guess, that broader group. So Sandgarners, Rosenbergs, Panoptes. Yeah. Um, I don't have the capacity to keep Panoptes, so I don't. Um, but, yeah, the Sandies, I, I, I actually, when I first got into reptile keeping, I always wanted a Mertens. I saw it at an expo and I was like, this is the coolest thing in the world. And I made the call to myself that a Mertens is something I should get when I actually own a house and can have a permanent big tank with water and things like that. Um, Because I just thought it was too much of a thing to try and have on the fly, especially if I was moving. Um, Though in saying that, Tyson's changed my perspective on that. He does an awesome job. Tyson um, from Doc Merton. Um, But, yeah, so I um, didn't want to do it. And then, you know, I had this big anti large monitor thing for myself. Like I was like, I should never keep these. Um, and then, yeah, um, through unexpected circumstances, the male um, Sandy got thrust into my hands. Um, so someone you just needed to, to move it on. Um, they weren't keeping it well. And so they said, look, we just want you to have it, take care of it. Um, and so I took care of it and I was just thinking, oh, I'll get rid of it eventually. Like, you know, I was just trying to get it out of the circumstance it was in. It didn't really you know, phase me. And then he really grew on me and I, I really, really liked him. Um, and, you know, I didn't have an adequate setup at the time for him. Like it was, it was better than where he was, but it wasn't as good as it is. He's now got an Avery or he and his girlfriend have an Avery. Um, and yeah, so I, I sort of got that and realized the real joy of having them. There's so much more uh, interactivity you can have with them. They're, you know, as smart as everyone sort of makes out. Um, they've all got really clear different personalities and yeah. So I ended up getting the, the Sandys um, and then, yeah, I sort of made a decision that I'd get um, Rosenberg. So I've got a, a, a fairly young um, sort of New South Wales type Rosenbergs. Um, and then I've got one of the, uh, like a probably near adult female uh, WA Rosenbergs as well. Oh, that's and awesome. Those WAs are sick. They look so cool. I mean, she's a good animal too. Um bit flighty but still still not bad but they're they're wonderful animals um so yeah but i really like them they've just really grown on me that whole group that like they're in that sort of size bracket too where they're they're a big monitor without being too big yeah so you, you can kind of be able to keep them indoors to a reasonable extent um i mean loki's kind of yeah he's, he's probably in that same sort of footprint at the moment sort of thing uh, but obviously, you don't have to deal with water and <laughs> yeah, water yeah. And all that. I mean, I was very anti-water for a long time as well. Um, like, I, I didn't want to have to deal with. I now have quite a few aquatic-related things in the house, whether it be fish or paludariums or whatever. Um, but yeah, I was very anti-water because I was just I didn't like the idea of it because it was so foreign to me. And yep. this will probably make a few people kick. Years ago, um, I found someone that was selling a McClay's water snake. And because I wasn't confident in keeping something like that alive, I said, oh, no. I actually asked them about file snakes originally because they bred file snakes, Arafura file snakes. 
Um, and I wish I'd love to hear them. And admittedly, the more I read up on file snakes, it sounds like they're very finicky, miserable sort of animals. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's what turned me off. And I was like, oh, do you have like? I was like, oh, do you have like little file snakes or something? Like, I don't have to have a six foot aquarium. Uh, and they're like, oh no, I don't keep little files, but I've got one male Maclay's left if you're interested. And I was like, mm, maybe I don't know. And I was like, no, 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 no. This whole water thing's silly. You should just avoid it anyway. I don't think Maclay's have come around in a million years since. <laughs> yeah, you never see them. Yeah, that'd be something cool to do as an aquatic snake snake setup. That'd be awesome. Yeah, you don't see them around much. The file snakes or the Maclay's water snakes? No. No, they're um, I haven't seen them in recent years in a long time. No, I reckon either people aren't having any success with them or it's just completely underground between mates and you know trades and stuff like that, yeah. which is more likely the case. I think if, if anybody is having success with them, I dare say they're probably in that bracket where there's a bit of that going on. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're the sort of thing where they definitely fall into it, um, because they're, they're one of the species, I guess, that just is the perfect candidate. They're, for hardcore hobbyists, there's something that they're very interested in, you know what I mean? Like they're just such a unique snake and they're one of those unique snakes we can keep. But, I mean, there are people, like I know, I've spoken to people that are looking at avenues of getting things like wild takes, like legal wild takes, I should say, uh, for species like Maclays and Bok Dams and things like that up in the NT. All pie in the sky stuff, but it's one of those things where they're sussing out properties where they can, you know, get approved permits to go collect them just for the fact that they are so thin on the ground. Yeah. We need more of that kind of variety in the hobby, I reckon. And when, yeah, especially definitely. when you're talking that sort of stuff. Like, I think over the last few years, too, you can almost see a shift in people's, people's likes, you know, like I think you're seeing less people kind of getting into the hobby just for those central bearded dragons and the, the carpet pythons and stuff. And you get more people that are kind of getting into a bit more obscure animals and that, that really opened my eyes when I had this young fella join up to work and, you know, he's only just turned 17 or whatever, but he has one of the most obscure collections for a 17 year old. It's not just a bunch of, you know, anteresia and carpet sort of thing. It's all this sort of like left of field stuff. And it's really cool to kind of see a young fella get into stuff like that, which is a little bit different. Um, I have to kind of hit on your your boigers, actually, your brown tree snakes, because obviously you you handed one over to me not too long ago, but you're quite a fan of those, and you've got a fair number of those as well. How do you go about keeping those guys? Um, so in the time I've had them, I've alternated them between racks and enclosures. I tried, admittedly, a smaller Avery, but I did try an Avery, which didn't go well um, for me. Um, so I've gone through all manner of things at the moment. I still have them in racks and that's mainly because I was moving forward with an idea that backfired for an enclosure that backfired horribly for the group I wanted to move in there. And it kind of took my confidence out, um, on doing that. And so for context, if anyone wants to know what that is, is I had a very large male. So my largest male trying to eat a decent sized female. Um, so I'd always house them together. Um, it wasn't during feeding time. I was prepping food, but I hadn't, I don't know if that's what set them off, but yeah, I, um, went in to go open the tub. I had them in the same tub to separate them, to go feed them. And then they started eating each other and I was like, oh no. And, um, at that point I decided maybe I want to keep them in separate enclosures. (laughs) Um, so yeah, maybe it's just my personal experience. I've never had, I'm overwintering them all together at the moment. Uh, so there's one species I'm hoping to try and breed. Um, so again, because as, as you sort of talked about before, that Bill was probably one of the only people, at least in New South Wales, probably 
yet one of the only, if not the only person breeding colubrids. Um, and at that expo where he got out of the hobby, um, he pretty much disseminated most of them. And now there's no one consistently breeding them. And for, you know, pythons are very much in one class of themselves. You know, they've got beautiful colors. Um, they've got, a, you know, particular, you know, appeal to them, but they also also kind of have that, they just, you know, they sit there a lot. They're a larger snake. They're not as engaged with the environment, I find, as something like boigers or colubrids overall and elapids. You know, elapids are something I want to be very careful of my involvement with just because of the fact that I don't want to, you know, get bitten and, you know, not, you're likely that you're going to die is not going to happen. But, like, you know, if you do get bitten, you can get pretty serious damage from it. You know, again, it's just thinking long term and I don't think I've got that competency. So I, it's not something I want to like pursue um but i do like the appeal of those snakes and the fact that they're so interesting they're so engaging um you know there's just there's just something about them that you know the diverse sort of uh environments they like inhabit the you know things that are active during the day it's nice having things that are primarily diurnal um and so yeah um like i I would love a, a green tree snake or common tree snake for that exact reason but i'm also not confident i'd set it up well or treat it well yeah, like have the space to do so, so I don't want to do it. Um, but, you know, things like that just attracted me to them. But for that reason, Boyger are enough in that group of, they're different enough to pythons that they've got all these interesting little quirks and habits and behaviours. They've got a bit, they're a bit more challenging than pythons too. Like they're not as steady feeders, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But, you know, they've just got this uniqueness about them. And the head, you know, they've just got such cool heads. Um, I keep primarily the eastern phase, so like the, the standard brown, brown tree snake. Um, I've got a pair of pretty, pretty cruddy night tigers. Um, so nothing too special about them. And yeah, I was in the process. It's kind of fallen over a bit recently, but I was in the process of trying to get some um, NT ones as well. So some Darwin localities. Um, but COVID kind of spanned that a year ago and it's not moved forward. <laughs> that sucks. Yeah. That's um, stunning, those ones. Yeah, oh, they're phenomenal. Um, so yeah, it's just one of those things. But I've always just been attracted to them because they're such a, you know, an interesting species to me. Um, you know, and like, I, I, my long-term goal is to move them into a, you know, a custom background enclosure. But I really want to try and do at least for my East Coast ones, um, like that sort of bubbling sandstone. You know how like you see around like very popular Sydney sandstone herb spots. They're just beautiful sandstone escarpment that are. Uh, is bubble like there's those little crevices that like i mean it just sounds like i'm describing any any rock face here but you know what i mean if you've seen sydney sandstone you know what it looks like yeah, yeah. Uh, i would absolutely love to try and replicate that and you know a bit like how um natural herb keeper had it where they've got that kind of um cave built into the top of the enclosure i'd like to do something like i've seen you know some absolutely awesome photos of just like a loop of a boiger sitting out basking in the middle of the day in one of those like little bubbles inside a, a piece of sydney sandstone Christie's Boyger enclosure is fantastic. You have to give it him is, some yeah. serious props for that. Like oh, when you sure. actually look at it in detail and you see all the intricacies through it and, and like all these little nooks and crannies where the snakes can actually sit, like that just blows my mind how much time and patience that would have taken to grout all of that and make all of that. Oh. But yep. I, I love the style of it because it's kind of really cool as if you're in the cave with the Boyger looking out to those basking platforms in the back of the enclosure where the light's actually coming through. Like it's a completely mm-hmm. different concept. Usually it's the other way around where that light's in the front and you're looking into the cave from the front sort of thing. So it's 
yeah, that that enclosure. I mean, I love that thing. That was that was awesome. I'd love to do something similar with mine once they're a decent size. Like, I mean, mine are in pretty good looking enclosures now, but they're not going to last in that for forever. That's for sure. But yeah, stunning species. Hey, I, the eyes get me. That's where mm. I get kind of mesmerized is those big golden orbs of eyes. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Like my uh, my partner hates them. She's like they just they look like she just thinks they're like bug eyed evil looking things. Like she's just like, <laughs> they look like they're up to something terrible, you know. <laughs> and I'm like, no, no, they're wonderful. They're beautiful. That's actually speaking of the names I have for things. Uh, my female night tiger is called Pig. Uh, because she's a garbage disposal unit. If something doesn't eat, you can just give it to her. She'll eat it willy-nilly. <laughs> you know, everyone needs those animals. That's what Loki is to me. Actually, talking about names, Kamikaze and Cyclone, that's those two Boyga's names downstairs because oh, they're no. absolutely mental. But yeah, I remember Kamikaze. Um, but so Cyclone's the one I gave you, right? Yeah, Cyclone's yeah. the one that you gave me. Danny named that one and it kind of just stuck. I was just like, oh, we need to name this thing. She's like Cyclone because it was like wailing around in my hands. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that'll do. <laughs> oh, that'll be cool. So, I mean, if you were to to build like a parent enclosure, like just hypo- hypothetical, what sort of size would you be kind of aiming for? Do you reckon? So, something I've really, really enjoyed doing. I've done it a couple times now. I've got a few enclosures with it. And I know there's a co- like you know there's a trade off going on there. I really like having a deeper enclosure, so something at like three foot. Yep. Uh, you can, especially with the, the mock rock, um, I haven't done it personally, but I've seen uh, an enclosure that I was actually even considering buying um, for the Boyga because it was beautiful. It had this artificial sandstone. It did look a little fake, but it was quite good. Um, but the problem was is it was two foot deep. And with that two foot depth, it just, the background didn't look, it just, it was right up against the glass. It sort of took up too much space in the tank and wasn't aesthetically pleasing. Yeah. And I thought to myself, the exact same thing, but three foot deep, having everything roughly in the same position. It had these deep crags built into it. So, um, you know, it was kind of like almost a foot deep sort of these these crags into it that the snakes could go into, like these shelves. Like it just looked really cool. And it was one of those things where I was like, oh, anything I want to build for these guys, I'd love to make it three foot deep. Problem with that is, is that you've then got to either have a two foot dimension somewhere else so you can get it through a door it, can, yeah. it has to be uh, collapsible so that you can easily take it apart, which if you've got a full background on, uh, it isn't. Um, so, yeah, there's a f- few problems there. But ideally, what I wanted to do was something that's about three foot deep, probably. I mean, this is ambition, pure ambition, six foot wide and probably six foot tall. What it'll probably realistically be will be a four by two by two. <laughs> <laughs> Even still, though, like it's always good to have goals. Like I've yeah, that's yarned, right. yarned on about my walking Gillen's enclosure. You know, like it's dreaming big, whether it happens one day or not. You know, yeah, we'll exactly. See, but you know, you're talking ideal world too, because you do have to make it practical, especially if you are, you know, potentially going to move here or there. Like I'm now going to have to move Loki's enclosure, and I did build that with the purpose of it being hopefully dismantable. I haven't obviously tried to take it apart, so we'll see what happens when the day comes. But and I mean, that's something I like just on talking about my downsize earlier, that was something I was very conscious of when I started doing the downsize was I knew that I'd got myself not in too deep, but I'd got this massive collection. There's a, a number of species that I wanted to start making the call that it's time to move these on. Cause I'm, I'm personally like, I'm sure you guys are saying you get personally invested in a lot of individual animals. Yeah, um, yeah. And so you want to make, the decision of these are never leaving me sort of thing. So for instance, like my sand goanas, Rosenbergs, I, 
I don't really want to ever get rid of them and have, if I have to. Same with my boiga. Each one of my boiga I'm very personally attached to, as with a whole bunch of my other animals. Um, but something that I was very conscious of is what where I'm working in sort of research, you do have to jump around a lot. Um, and I was coming up to a very big point of uncertainty where I wasn't going to be getting paid with what I was doing anymore. And I didn't know where my next potential job opportunity was going to be. So if I had to move into state, I wanted to try and make sure that whatever I had was something I could probably take to most states. So things like Boiga, you can take to pretty much all states, but Tassie, um, Sango owners, Rosenbergs, you can do the same. Um, a lot of species, generally speaking, that I've now moved to. A lot of those weird niche things, some states just won't allow them, so it becomes a bit mm. of a problem. And the last thing you want to get into is if you've got a big collection, having to downsize in, in a hot second, because that's just not fair on the animals all around. Um, and it's going to put you through hell. Yeah. I've seen people do it. I've seen people downsize. You know, there's one massive collection of monitors. I remember seeing getting downsized because the person was going through, you know, very like they had a quite intense time going on personally, but they downsized all their captive animals because they weren't taking care of them anymore, or couldn't take care of them anymore, I should say, in like three weeks. There must have been about 50 animals. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not putting blame on them, but it was just one of those things that, you know, they had all the stress in their personal life and they had to manage these animals. Yeah. So it's something I was just conscious of. Yeah, and you never know what what's going to be around the corner in life too. So it's that's kind of, right. You just don't know. Like I mean, obviously Jason got wrapped up with kids and stuff like that, becoming a new dad, and you know had to kind of take that on board. And you know, no doubt at one point or another, I'm hopefully going to become a proven breeder, and I might need to do something along the same lines. Or, <laughs> or I think that's the best way that used. <laughs> <laughs> you become worth more then. Yeah, 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 except you resell value. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You don't. You don't. Has <laughs> your wife already tried to sell you? <laughs> yeah, every day. <laughs> oh, that's too funny. So kind of talking a little bit about your, you know, becoming a researcher and stuff like that, like can you kind of elaborate on a little bit more what you're doing there or what you have done in the past as far as your field studies and stuff go? Yeah, sure. So, um, uh, so I've... I've well, I haven't, I've submitted a PhD, so I haven't actually got it confirmed yet, which means you, it's all ticked off and you, you've passed examination and you get to be called the doctor. Um, but so for my PhD, I was doing a lot of work on uh, the Jackie lizard, Jackie dragon, everyone's favorite charismatic Southeastern Australian lizard, um, looking at sort of uh, how, you know, evolution drives certain traits in them. Um, and so one of the, the projects I was doing, I was doing a lot of uh, population comparisons so I was going all up along their range. So well, most of their range, not all of their range, um, but I was going as far north as sort of northern New South Wales in the uh, New England Tablelands um, and then all the way down to parts of Victoria um, and just collecting all these different uh, individual or, you know, doing research on all these different individuals um, from all these different populations. Um, and then a lot of work on the populations or some populations around Sydney, I should say, as well. Um, just looking at these population differences in parts of their physiology. Um, but after I sort of started wrapping that up, I ended up actually getting um, some work um, to do with the black summer bushfires. So I um, have quite recently been out um, surveying for reptiles after the fires. So we're sort of looking in different different areas around Sydney Basin and the certain species that we're, we're targeting so some of the stuff that isn't commonly looked at, like mustard belly snakes and um, uh, one of the other ones I'm not covering, but someone else on the project's working on is uh, broadheads as well. 
Um, so mm. a list of five sort of key species that we're, we're doing all these assessments to see how the fires might have impacted them. And so for things like the broadheads, we've got this really, the people working on it um, on the project have this really cool long-term data set um, where they can do some really interesting things to see what the fire's actually done. But for a lot of the other species where nothing's been happening, uh, we've got to kind of work with a, a lot more uh, on-the-fly methods because we don't have this data really from beforehand. Um, so it means that we're sort of just going out and comparing between areas that were burnt really heavily, uh, areas that weren't burnt too heavily, and areas that didn't get burnt by the fires at all. But it's meant that I've got to, you know, got to go all across Sydney. So like, and parts of, you know, the Sydney basin that are a bit more remote. So I was right up in the middle of Wollamai um, along the Army Road, which is, you know, not commonly accessed and right near where that big Gospers Peak fire was, the one that sort of nearly engulfed yeah. northwestern Sydney. Um, so doing a lot of work up there um, through parts of, uh, where else we go? Canangra Boyd. Awesome place, really cool environment. Really recommend it. Just even if you want to go for looking at the scenic views in the wilderness, it's pretty cooked. It's very cooked, but it's very nice. Uh, um, and lots of cool species for Sydney cider. So you know a lot of stuff that we don't really commonly see. So there's pseudomoya up there. Um, you know a lot of uh, two different species of all three, all three three species of elamperus, elamperus. So you get you come in koi and you get hitwali eye and tympanum as well. Uh, so yeah, just a, a whole bunch of interesting interesting stuff up there um and then we also did um uh areas around the sort of southern highlands so doing surveying through there where we found squillions upon squillions of small white snakes my least favorite snake um, <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah and then other than that uh when i while i've been working on that um uh, project as well the, the people i've been working with have put me on a few other projects so i was doing some i know this is a dirty word but doing some work on mammals oh no mammals um <laughs> so we're doing some surveying for greater gliders um and then i also went out quite recently and did some um was involved with some surveying out in the lucky desert so out in sort of new south wales sa border and we were looking at uh mammal communities uh reptile communities vegetation structure things like that so yeah so get out and about you know it's quite fun it's not, there's, there's trade-offs. There's always trade-offs with these things. I should say everyone thinks, oh, wow, it's the best thing ever. You can, you get to see herbs, you get to pay, get paid to see herbs. It's like mm, you get paid to do a project, which usually requires you either going to the same habitat and seeing the same herbs a million times and counting <laughs> yeah. them. Um, could be a cool habitat, but it's usually the same sort of pocket of habitat you go to a million times. Um uh, or it's working on one specific herb and you usually got pretty full work days where you've got to just go looking for that, that same thing over and over. So it is definitely fun, not underselling it, but you know, there's people like, Oh, why don't, and you know, it takes away, you're, you're away from home time as well. So, you know, you can't just go on the, the impromptu herb trips where you, you know, like they're, they're a bit few and far between when you've got to go out for two weeks to work somewhere, but yeah, I'm still yeah. complaining. <laughs> it does sound like a pretty, a pretty good job, but yeah, very involved. Sounds better than my job. <laughs> <laughs> as far as I know, Jace, all you do is sit in the bathroom and watch me on YouTube. <laughs> That's what you keep talking about. <laughs> you extended the bathroom break. Extended the breaks. <laughs> That's about the excitement of my job. <laughs> <laughs> That's I was going to say, I think the only perspective I have of your job, Jace, was when I got my chameleon geckos off you. And it was the day that someone had gone on a rampage through Sydney CBD. With That's right, it was, wasn't it? <laughs> and I, I remember, remember that. 
to meet you. And there's police cars everywhere and this whole hullabaloo. And, yeah, someone had gone on a knife spree. <laughs> yeah, they caught him, like, from where we were talking, 20 metres away. He was laying on the ground with that milk crate over his head, literally 20, <laughs> minute, 20 metres from where we were talking. Jesus. That's what was that day. I forgot. I, I I couldn't remember. Like, I was, I was only talking to someone about that oh, probably the other week when that actually happened. But I completely forgot that it was that day. <laughs> Hilarious. Oh, dude. Sydney, hey? Yep. That's good fun. So um, I, I do have to kind of bring it up just because it's, it's something that I know I've spoken to you this a fair, I've spoken about this to you in some fair detail in the past and we've always kind of had some back and forth conversations about it. But you've got your ear pretty firm to the, uh, the ground regarding the potential New South Wales licence reform as well, don't you? Can you just tell us a little bit what's going on there and what do you think about pet shops and, and all this licensing? Yeah, for sure. So um, I was in part involved with the process when it went through the review. So there's a big review that happened a few years ago. Uh, I think it was about 2017, 18. Um, and essentially what happened is along the East Coast, they were going through their big license review. They were trying to, you know, for Queensland, New South Wales, and now Victoria's going through its review now. But they were trying to bring all the three states closer in line so that they could try and crack down on all the sort of silly business that goes on, or the silly business that goes on, I should say. Um, so, you know, how things magically pop up out of nowhere and there's a lot of angry people about it. Um, and so it was about, you know, streamlining those aspects with species so to make sure that the national parks could understand what species are in captivity and privately held um, so that they could start properly regulating those as well as sort of looking at the growing concerns about animal welfare. So, and that was a big thing. There was big changes in, you know, perspectives on animal welfare. So in New South Wales, it was just after we had um, a discussion, I think it was a discussion paper coming out for reviews to the Prevention to Animal, or Prevention of Cruelty to Animals Act, which is the big animal welfare act here. Um, and it got, it was very ambiguously, ambiguously worded um, and got a lot of backlash because it was basically going to make everyone with a breeding pair of animals a pet shop legally, mm. which meant that you come under pet shop legal requirements. Anyway, there's all these big changes that were all happening concurrently. Um, and so national parks contacted the Herb Societies um, and said, we're going to be going to a big discussion about this to have stakeholder meetings. We're going to invite you in and we want to talk about how we can move forward with this. Um, and for people that might have been involved with it, so as in the uh, you know everyday keepers, they send out a, a big long document, and they ask you at the end of certain sections, what would you do here? What would you recommend? Um, and so everyone was invited to contribute. Um, I think some people even got emails from national parks about it, um, like license holders and stuff would have got emails. I don't know if everyone did, but I think a lot of people did, um, basically asking for you to contribute. Um, and then they went through all these big, long meetings. Now, in my capacity with it, I was actually focusing mainly on mammal stuff, but I was also a bit involved with the reptile things. Um, and so with the, the mammal stuff, we're actually not sure if people realise, but in other states you can keep things like sugar gliders and quolls and all manner of native animals as pets. Um, and we were sort of arguing, well, you know, these other states are doing it and all the catastrophes you're saying will happen haven't happened there. So... Why is New South Wales any different? Um, which was something I personally think they weren't, weren't too keen on that argument. <laughs> you know, all the catastrophes of everything you say could happen doesn't seem to be happening elsewhere. And admittedly, New South Wales does have some unique things for it, like we've got a bigger 
bigger population in all of these other places, potentially bigger demand. But yeah, you know, so I was I was very involved in that side of it. But I was also with the reptile side of things, um, partially involved with the the herpeter no was it Herpeter Cultural Cooperative of New South Wales, HCN, um, which has a website. You guys can Google and check it out. Um, and all the information from the reviews up there, from what we what the HCN submitted to national parks, as well as a lot of the feedback. Um, but basically, the whole process went through this massive review. One of the big talk points was moving a number of species to exempt. So everything that's currently, well, not exempt, a new special category that's legally distinct from exempt, but essentially exempt um, for the purposes of a keeper. Basically, it meant that you didn't have to have a license or do licensing things. You just had to have proof of purchase and that you got your animal from a legal source. Um, and so those were all the current pet shop species. So bearded drag, central bearded dragons, uh, smooth knobtails, thick tails, some of the carpet pythons, et cetera, et cetera. There were a few changes discussed about that. So like at the time, why aren't Stimson's pythons included in this list? Cause they're basically the same. And we now know they are the same. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even, I believe it was the Australian Museum put forward as well, putting blackheads on that list because they didn't think there was a, an issue with blackheads. So that was another one that came out as well. Um, so there was this discussion of an exempt list for New South Wales. Um, there was talk of expanding the New South Wales pet shop list to include all basic species. So anything on the basic license class or that would be on this new coded slash exempt license class would be moved onto that. Um, so it meant that a pet shop could apply for an application to sell... Um, central netted dragons so it wasn't a free-for-all it was that you had to apply there's a few things i personally disagreed with like i don't think i know, I know this is probably a contentious one but i don't think pet shop should probably sell olive pythons for nope. example or sand goannas again another r1 species um i think in specialty stores you know there's a good case that you know they're a good place to go but to the everyday punter and where it can be abused um i don't think it's necessarily a good idea and then also that also meant all the r1 lapids not that you'd have I think any pet shops being able to secure legal R1 lapids. So yeah, there's a few things there. Um, and then the other one that a lot of people are interested in, like get like heaps of messages about, um, was the expansion of the species list. So again, there's a heap of species held legally interstate. So for example, uh, emerald tree monitors, Prasinus, yep. Baroness Prasinus, um, Pilbara rock monitors, both types, northern and southern, both species, northern and southern. Um, there's a Strophurus or maybe even more, uh, Strophurus held interstate. So I think it's Junie, Junie is the one yep. that's held up in Queensland. Um, turtles, I know nothing of turtles, but there was, you know, found out that there's private Manning River turtles held up in Queensland as well. So, you know, there's a whole heap of species that, um, are held interstate or legally available was the other thing from interstate, um, that people applied for. Um, and it ended up being something like 30 species or so. Um, and so there was a cap on how many changes we could, or how many changes could be put forward. Um, or so I was told there was a cap, so it was roughly 30. So that meant that it was mainly aiming at trying to get new species onto the licensing scheme rather than trying to re, um, rearrange the currently terrible species lists. <laughs> you know, that was a big point we sort of made is that, you know, the our species list in New South Wales. Anyone that's seen the updated uh, Queensland species list or the species list that's now come out for Queensland, it's just a carbon copy of the New South Wales one with a few, you know, additions of, which are things that we pretty much argued to have added on. So Prasinus, um, 
the the Pilbara monitors, Glebo Palmer, Varanus Glebo Palmer. It's quite a, quite a few monitors actually. Um, and the problem is, is that their list is based on this already flawed foundation of the New South Wales list, which is already ten years out of date. Um, so yeah, it's a, a bit of a hassle there. But ultimately, it went through all this big process. It went up to the head of national parks, and it's so they they paid a a person or a person was hired by national parks to do this review. So they're completely external to national parks prior to it, and then they're a paid employee. Um, and they did this massive review over however many years doing all this consultation. Um, they put up a final report to national parks um, and it sat with them for since then. So 2018, I think it was. All the dates are a little fuzzy, but it's been an incredibly long time. Um, and so quite recently, the bird community, the aviculturists have cracked it. And they've got the shits pretty bad because nothing's happened in this time period. Yep. Um, and they get a bit of leeway to national parks because of the fires, obviously, you know, that would have predominated what they had to deal with and totally understandable. Um, but they've really chewed into them now. And so they've got um, politicians uh, from certain political parties pressuring them in, in state parliament to ask questions about it. Um, and then also quite recently they did a, a keeper request, which is like a freedom of information to get the report. Um, and what that keeper request basically showed is that they didn't talk anything about changes to the species list but um, for New South Wales, but they basically showed um, none of the other changes were really going to happen for reptiles um, and that birds were going to get a hell of a lot of birds onto an exempt licence. So a lot of bird species that were on um, their current B1 were going to be moved to this uh, coded category. Yeah, that's absolutely mental. Like I know that the bird, bird group's got a... Um uh, you know, like a massive kind of following behind it. So they've got a lot, a lot of power and stuff like that to go through. So it's kind of handy for them to have that sort of backing. Whereas I feel like the reptile communities can sometimes be a little bit lax in that sense. Like I'm I'm not exactly sure what's happening behind the woodwork. So, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I find that, you know, the bird hobby's been around for so long, whereas the reptile hobby's still very new. So I feel like we don't have enough people in the in the situation to kind of really push it forward maybe as much as what the, the avian community does. Oh, absolutely. I mean, the bird community is, uh, I think, much bigger overall, considerably bigger, in fact. Um, but it's also got a lot more structure and money, you know what I mean? Like they've got a much more yep. structured, I guess, uh, like they've got their federation and things like that of all the bird societies. They've got their sort of, you know, single statement they're taking forward, like they're a lot more unified. And the herb community is overall smaller and much more... Um, I know. I can't think of the right term off the top of my head, but you know, I mean, we're all over the shop sort of thing. Yeah. But yeah, so the avian guys have like a massive backing behind them essentially just to be able to kind of help push things along the along the chain there, which, um, you know, I kind of think that the, the reptile community might need a little bit more little bit more love with because I, I think a lot of the hobbyists at home and stuff don't have a lot of push and play with this where it'd be kind of be, like, it'd be kind of cool if we could kind of organise some sort of society to be able to not necessarily fund, but at least kind of push and show that there's a lot of people interested in some movements here with the with the licensing system. Oh, absolutely. I mean, like, you, you're totally right about the avian guys. They've just, they've got this big structure already there. Like, they've got their federation of societies. They've got a lot more societies. They've just got a lot more, uh, I guess, you know, ability to, to push. You know, they, yep. they get meetings with the environment minister's um, staff all the time to push arguments they want to push. Um, I know one of them went down to meet the federal environment guys to talk about bird exports at one point. 
like legal bird exports from private people. Like it's one of those things they've just got this huge, huge amount of say. And you're not wrong saying that reptiles would benefit from it. We're definitely a much smaller community, but you know, lots of people have been pushing for a long time to get the community to come together. And I think, you know, there's been attempts at it and they've kind of fallen over for multiple reasons, but it would be a really, a really good thing for us to across the states come together. Um, it's, I guess, just trying to build that structure, have people want to put the time in in a volunteer sense is something I think yeah. is a big aspect. You can only volunteer so much time, you need committed people. Yeah. So, yeah, but um, there's nothing that I don't think there's any serious harm that could come to us from it, only good benefits. Yeah, as you say, though, like it would be quite time consuming and, you know, most people obviously need to make their own crust and don't have a lot of time to lay down themselves, but it would be able to, it would be good to try to see if you could at least get a collective group of people that, you know, even if it's taking turns and sitting in different meetings or something like that to kind of get that just at the forefront of all these politicians and stuff like that to say, hey, this group of people are interested in bettering this. I mean, ideal world, personally, I reckon it would be good to have kind of like a a national reptile licensing system because I know there's a lot of states out there like WA and Tasmania that have a pretty rough trot of this for their own reasons, obviously. Um, but even if it was, you know, east coast of Australia, essentially, that had the one licensing system, like that's where predominantly most of your reptile keepers are going to be. It'd be good to just be able to unify it somehow. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, you know, and have that, and like I've become very, I guess, aware of it, um, in the past couple of years with, and it's because of sort of other podcasts that really highlighted how the community looks on YouTube. That's one of those things, you know, when we've got all those like, and it's more of an issue overseas where it's like, oh, look at this big python. Can it eat a Mm. old warthog? Can it strike my friend in the face? Blah, blah, blah. Like all these sensationalist things or all these things that sort of devalue animals. Ultimately, you can probably argue it's not the end of the world. It definitely isn't. But to an ex- like an ex- external perspective, it's a huge problem. Even the idea of racks, like having a, a room of racks, like wall-to-wall racks, is just such a horrible look, you know? Like, oh, you're keeping living animals in a shoe tub? That's pretty bad. And, you know, obviously in reptile keeping, you know, people know that they survive and do well and can breed and whatever, um, and there's justifications either side. Um, but from an external perspective, it, you, you've got to consider the reality that it looks bad. Yeah, 100%. Um, Definitely. I mean, like I asked that, like, I'm not sure if you guys probably saw it. It was a year, probably a year or so ago now. I put up a little fun poll in one of the community pages or a couple of the community pages just asking for people's thoughts and a whole bunch of ideas that have really popped up. So, you know, one of them was like, you know, do you think from the outside that racks look bad? Um, you know, if you were not a reptile person, would you go, oh, man, that's horrible? And the overwhelming, like overwhelmingly large amount of people, I can't remember the exact, but something like 70 to 80% said, yeah, we think, you know, if you're an outsider, racks look bad. Yeah. I suppose at the end of the day, I, I do roughly remember actually seeing that and I can completely understand that. Like, obviously, being reptile keepers, we can sit here and go, they work. They do the exact same exactly. thing that they need to do. You, we know they're completely functional. We've all used them. We've all kept them. You know, we've some of us still have them. But exactly as you say, to the outsider, they're going, well, that's not an enriching environment. It doesn't look like that animal's got enough room to exercise or do this or do that or, you know, doesn't have any stimulation. So, yeah, something like as simple as that can be used against us as, uh, you know, as you said, like a, a pack of rat bags or something that aren't doing the right thing by these animals. So we kind of got to look at that as a sense. And I think at least if I'm going to take a little caveat from this, at least the Australian 
YouTube community, from what I can see, if that's where we're kind of targeting this, is what I believe a lot better than some outside communities in other parts of the the world where I think most people in that community are doing a pretty good job of, you know, showing Australian reptiles and Australian reptile keeping to be a positive experience and not necessarily that sense of, um, you know, that kind of like, as you say, clickbait sort of hmm. community. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. And I think you're on the money there. And you're absolutely on the money with um, the Australian YouTube community it has a completely different angle. I think it takes like the reptile YouTube community. Like it's just, it focuses more on the enclosure and the experience rather than the collection aspect. And, yep. you know, like I'll, I'll be completely upfront. When I first got into reptile keeping, I binge watched a hell of a lot of Brian Barczyk. Yep. Uh, no, I think everyone did. Yeah, exactly. Like it's just what you did. And I mean, the production quality back then was still horrendous. Like it was horrendous. He's much better now, but it was still better than a lot of other stuff on YouTube and it was reptile oriented content. Mm. And there's a lot of things I just found cringy, but I also was just engaged with it, you know. And, you know, the number of kids I've spoken to, that their first snake they want to be because they see that content is either a ball python or a bumblebee and they can name yep. some – oh, sorry, a ball python or a, a corn snake and they can name some stupid morph like bumblebee, fucking – Lesser. No, no, lesser clown <laughs> yeah. blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, yeah, you're not getting one of those. Like, you know, it's probably one around illegally, but I don't recommend you get it. You know, <laughs> like get yeah. a, get a python. Yeah. Um, so, but that's know. where everyone starts. Like, is, like if you if you were completely new to YouTube and and the reptile community, and you typed in, you know, how to keep snakes or whatever in in YouTube, he's pretty much the first person that comes up. That was the first person I ever got exposed to. And you know, when I was new into the hobby, I was like, oh, this is pretty cool. You know, he's got these full walls of racks. You know, he must know what he's talking about. Blah blah blah. But it's not necessarily the case all the time. It is, it is that kind of you know different sensationalized. YouTube channel essentially. Yeah, and I mean, and you know, taking back to what you said earlier, even in the international stuff, there's a lot more progressive things that have popped up, which is good. Mm. Um, but I just like one of the. I'm sure a few people, you guys might have even seen it. There was that I think it was World Animal Protection or whatever made that ball python documentary. Like uh, it was a YouTube documentary. You can check it out. But like they had all these accompanying articles. I think they even ended up getting um, things published in like uh, animal welfare, reptile journal, also animal welfare scientific journals, um, but all this stuff about the ball python trade. Um, and a lot of that, the actual documentary, the video itself, was all this emotive stuff. And they had photos from an expo of all these ball pythons in a, um, in like, you know, those little acrylic tubs or the, the deli containers and things like that. And again, you know, we take that as a, a common mainstay in, you know, reptile keeping expos to us are just a, an event, if anything, you know, most people are probably concerned about disease risks, so they want to, you know, minimize touching and handling and things like that or have things that are disposable. Um, mm. But from an outside's perspective, outsider's perspective, again, it just looks like this snake crammed at this tiny enclosure. And when you've got these people that want to really angle that truth, you know, or manipulate that truth, um, it just creates bad images for the hobby. And it's very easy to man- manipulate what you want the viewer to see as well if you're just just seeing that. Oh, hardly. I mean, I remember in one of the, I think the puff piece sort of news articles they did with it or like website articles they did, it was just a close-up photo and it didn't say it outright, but the implication was is that the tiny deli cup was the enclosure for the snake. You know, that's where it was. Life, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was the implication. I was like, oh, okay, well, that's a bit of creative liberty. Um, <laughs> you know, so, yeah. But um, 
Yeah, I've forgotten where we started with this. I've just tangented it so hard. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's good you ran with it, but we were just talking about the, the reform of the licenses and stuff. In oh, yeah, 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 yeah. But, and so that's the whole thing. And so one of the things I, I probably didn't mention, but it's like, you know, a lot of people don't realize is that the animal welfare guys have such a huge say in the licensing reforms. Oh, definitely. Like the RSPCA were involved, so they had representatives, Animal Welfare League had representatives. And then... I wouldn't call them a welfare organization or welfare groups, but I would call them uh, wildlife advocates or stakeholders uh, were groups like WIRES, uh, Sydney Wildlife, things like that, who were very, um, one of their big motivations, they had a philosophical, you know, disagreement with a lot of things, but they were also very welfare focused as well. So while they weren't there in a welfare, strict welfare capacity, that was a lot of their, their perspective on it was, focusing on preventing, you know, abuses to animal welfare. Yeah. But I think the problem is with that is they see more so the bad side of everything mm. than a lot of the good side. Oh, absolutely. Unfortunately. So they take all the negatives to the table and don't see a lot of the positives. Yeah, yeah, wholeheartedly. I mean, like, you, you know, you can't disagree with that. You know, it depends on what angle you look at, but like they, if they get animals that come from, so a lot of wildlife carers will get animals that come from seizures or, uh, native yeah. pets that have escaped so they get to see that side of it um you know a lot of the perspective on i'm not gonna say wildlife i'm gonna say native animals is a distinction i think between wildlife and native animals um a lot of the perspective is on wildlife because they're working with wild animals that have come into captivity um albeit for a temporary period of time and they they handle very differently and behave very differently to um captive animals like I can, I can say that for someone that's worked under heaps of different permits um, and collected wild animals and worked with wild animals and then also had captive animals of the same species and worked with research collections of the same species that are captive bred, you know, chalk and cheese all of the time. And so there's a whole heap of different, you know, uh, factors leading towards that as well. So, you know, you see these animals as a lot more touchy, a lot more less suited to being pets. You see the worst of the people involved in it. You know, it just forms this negative opinion. And, you know, there's always going to be bad eggs. It doesn't matter where you are. You know, we've got bad politicians. We've got bad mechanics. We've got, exactly. we've got bad people that work in the construction industry. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. Are you pointing fingers there? No, no, no. no. <laughs> but the pet shop industry is untouchable. No. <laughs> um, yeah, no. So you've just got, um, you know, you've always got these bad eggs. But when you only see the worst of it, it definitely builds a, a perspective. Um, yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it sounds like they've tried to do the right thing, though. Oh, their intentions are totally, you know, yeah. they're, they're not misplaced intentions. They want to do the right by the animal. But I remember there was a big yep. point someone made, or at least maybe, you know, said after a meeting, but they, um, one of the, the wildlife groups wanted to be involved in the species selection panel. And the comment someone made afterwards was something like, oh, because they've got a hell of a lot of experience keeping uh, Varanus presence, do they? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, you know, it's kind of like, oh, you know. We understand, like, and they, they have a, a very big wealth of knowledge. I'm not trying to disprove that, but it was yeah. just kind of like, you know, uh, there's all different parts of the equation. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Lots of different views on the topic too. Yeah, yeah. It, I mean, it, it, it yeah. would be bloody nice to be able to have a few more species on the list, even just in the oh, New South definitely. Wales pet shops. You know, it'd be nice to be able to have some. And I'm not talking like anything too crazy out of left field, but even something like central netted dragons, maybe some ackies. Hmm. Boima pythons, stimmies. Oh, you know. I mean, arguably most of the pythons, yeah, bar yeah. what two, three are probably not. Yeah, three, I'd say, are probably yeah. not great candidates. Uh, but the rest are fine. Yeah, 
Um, you know, like I even think like one of the big things we were talking about and it was put forward as well, the changes was to move rough scales under basic license. You know, they're no Definitely. longer $10,000 yeah. a snake. Um, yeah. There's no reason they need to be, they're not hard to keep. You know, they're, no. they're by no means a challenging species. It's not like you're, you know, force feeding a fish or something, you know, like <laughs> they'll, they'll take rodents yeah. pretty easy. They take chicks, they'll eat anything, you know. Um, they are seriously an easy snake to keep. You know, and the reason they were on, and this is part of the issue, the reason they were on our, like our R2 advanced license earlier was because they were thin on the ground. You know, that wild mm. collector came in from the, the Australian Reptile Park. They had to breed them up. And then, you know, the problem is, is that the system has such a long time between these reevaluations that you, A, don't fix them up and you can have all these cycles happen and everything blow out of place or whatever. Um, and you've also got the original people that understand the motivations behind why certain things were put where, I have now left the, the position at parks and don't understand the motivations behind certain Why? things. Like, and I'll take this, this is a purely anecdotal one. I don't have exact proof for it either way, but I was talking to um, a very veteran reptile keeper who um, was involved in licensing changes back in the day. Um, and they were talking to me about the blue tongue skinks. And so you'll notice that the Northern blue tongue, which is intermedia uh, or subspecies intermedia, skin is intermedia is on R2, our advanced license here while the Eastern blue tongue, which is the same species, different subspecies is on our basic license and can be sold in pet shops. Mm. And arguably most of them in captivity now because of the wonderful um, world of mutations, they're all, you know, probably crosses between the two. Most of yep. the albinos have uh, a bit of Northern in them. There's no, no ambiguity there. Um, but it means that we've got all these, you know, things that are sort of uh, crosses, mudbloods, whatever you want to call them floating around. Um, but in talking to this veteran keeper, he was saying that the reason it initially happened back when he was involved with the licensing change was is that you put an application in for something to be recognized and it'd be, okay, yep, we tick it off, we approve it. Yes, it's around, it's legit, you can keep it, blah, blah, blah. Um, and then it would be put on to our advanced system straight away. So when they declared the split for Northern Blue Tongues, they then just put that straight onto R2. So anything that was a Northern Blue Tongue got moved onto R2 and then you have your Eastern Blue Tongues on R1. And practically, it's probably one of the most silly things to try and enforce, you know, like it's it's just gotten so runaway trained now. And that was one of the things that was brought up in these meetings is that they should just be treated the same, you know, yeah. there's no no reason why that should distinction should be there. But then you've got people in the community that come up with these, you know, crazy explanations of why some things are on R2, you know, like, oh, it's because it's so hard to keep. It's like, no, it's not. It's very easy to keep, you know. Mm. So, yeah, it just leads to uh, Chinese whispers and, you know, ghost stories and stuff. And that's the problem with this turnaround time. And that was something actually, that whole licensing review was being argued very hard from both the Queensland guys and the New South Wales guys was that we want in writing proof that you're going to be doing more regular reviews, even if they're just to review stuff like the species licensing. Because you've got stuff like splits, talking about depressor, you know, last review, there wasn't four species of depressor. There wasn't, a, you know, there wasn't a, um, a four species that were described from depressor, yet they went through that split. Now we've got Epsosolus, Cygnotus, and Neos as well. And, yep. you know, three of them are probably, like Depressor, Epsosolus and Cygnotus are probably widely held. I don't know about Eos. Um, but, you know, same with Oedura. You know, Marmorata got split up. You know, having such long turnaround times just leads to all these problems. Same with Diperifera. There are people with Diperifera and Tympanocryptus that came from Wild Collects, like Legal Wild Collects, that were collected under one species code and now been described as new species, like... It just runs away so quickly in the world of taxonomy. But the problem is, is like the you, you're talking turnaround times as well. Like 
Antaresia Stimson I are still, well, you know, now they're children I, but they're still on the list as liasis. Mm, absolutely. Like, this is the one thing that irks me so much is seeing them under, under the as uh, liasis. Like that's been years and years now. Like surely they could have fixed that. Oh, wholeheartedly. And I mean, they did. So the the list that was sort of presented, I think, in one of the later stages had things like that fixed. So uh, Glenn Shea went through and updated all the taxonomy. So if anyone yep. was to know taxonomy, it's Glenn Shea. Um, so yeah, he went through and fixed that all up. So hopefully if a revised list does come out, it will be updated. (laughs) Yeah. It'd be nice to kind of get that all wrapped up, you know, in a nice little, little bow one day, but you know, that's just a matter of time until we get, get the right heads into the right spots and get it all sorted and straightened out. So I do have to kind of just kind of touch on a little bit of talk about your mammals because I know, like, I'm not a mad mammal guy myself, but it is something that does interest me because I know you've done a fair bit of work trying to get these mammals across the line to get a few more species on the list there. And mm-hmm. uh, actually just speaking to my my boss today, he kind of mentioned to me, he's like, man, I wish we could even just have, like, spinifex hopping mice and planes rats in the shop. Like, it'd be so cool to be able to offer something like that versus your, your standard domestic mouse and rat and stuff. But did you want to kind of just elaborate a little bit on what you had to do mammals-wise to try to get that across the line? So mammals uh, was always an uphill battle. (laughs) Um, If there was something that I think our national parks never wanted to talk about, it would have been expanding the native mammal list. Um, And we kept pushing and pushing and pushing. Um, And it took a lot of time and a lot of effort. Um, And probably is something that contributed to me getting a little bit of burnout with captive animal stuff was just that and what I was involved with with the the reptile side of things. Um, But it was so the New South Wales Mammal Society, which was sort of spearheaded by myself, um, sorry, myself, Michael Donnelly, uh, Professor Mike Archer. So he's an academic at UNSW that's a big advocate for um, increasing native mammal ownership. Um, Dr. Michelle Daly, who's a a reptile and mammal veterinarian. Well, she sees everything, but she's got expertise in native mammals um, and reptiles as well. Um, and then uh, Anthony Stimson. So a lot of people in the reptile community would know Anthony. So he's a, a mobile uh, demonstrator. And then uh, Dr. Lee Wobley as well, who's uh, involved with Anthony's business or is a partner in Anthony's business. Um, and so all of us together sort of worked really hard at um, – Challenging, and if you look at the New South Wales National Parks website, we'll have this policy of why native mammals aren't good pets. Uh, sorry, I'll try again. Aren't good pets. And we work together to basically write an essay to say these are all incorrect statements. <laughs> um, and so we challenge them. And so we, we challenge a lot of ideas that they'd sort of put forward with no substance. There's yep. been so many studies done to date by uh, government organisations of previous iterations of the Department of Primary Industries here um, and uh, even national parks that have sort of evaluated them and said this isn't the end of the world. Um, Dr. Steve Jackson, who's the um, he's involved with animal welfare at uh, New South Wales Department of Primary Industries, he's also the author of like the Captive Mammal Guidebook, so Captive Mammals, Captive Australian Mammals. You'll see it's about, you know, as thick as, you know, I'm trying to think of a good example, as thick as an iPhone sort of thing. Um, and it covers the, the husbandry of every, um, pretty much every group of Australian mammals. Um, and so Steve was involved in this, this review process as well. And he even said he doesn't disagree with the idea that, um, and this is, you know, taking it as paraphrased, but he didn't disagree with um, 
the idea of more increased ownership of native mammals in New South Wales. And there was a certain list of species that he would approve of being owned. So obviously we weren't talking about everything and, you know, we've got submissions. You can Google New South Wales Mammal Society. You can have a look at everything we put forward to national parks. Um, and at the end, there's this whopper big list of everything we found that was legally available in captivity. And so that included things like red kangaroos. Now we're not Jeez. saying you should go out and get a red kangaroo as a pet. Like, yeah. you know, you're not going to have a kangaroo in a bathtub. Like, come on, that's silly. You need proper enclosures and people that yep. do own them privately have, you know, massive fences, like, you know, in the states where you are allowed to keep them as pets, there's minimum standards for housing. Uh, or in one of the states there is. The other one, there's a code of, like a, a voluntary sort of unofficial code of practice about how high your fences should be, what sort of fences you should have, the size of the enclosure, things like that. Um, and so that was a big thing we talked about with National Parks was we were happy to work with them to devise a code of practice um, for the, the ownership of these animals. But the main things we sort of ended up um, pushing forward with, and I can't remember the exact list, but we're... Um, expanding to have uh, sugar and squirrel gliders. Yep. Um, and, you know, obviously trying to you know, avoid the horrendous things that happen overseas with them. So they are widely available internationally from Papuan, like Papuan animals. So the species are found in Papua as well as a subspecies up there. And that's sort of led to this massive international pet trade in them. And they do some absolutely heinous crap, um, like keeping them in tiny ass bird cages that are, you know, not even fit for a canary. Yeah. We're not, you know, we're obviously not advocating that. We were trying to build a good structure from the base up, saying if you bring everyone into this the right way, we'll then, you know, you can build a good foundation and have a solid building sort of thing. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and as part of that as well, we're talking about, you know, uh, we wanted pet shops to have them because pet shops are for things like hopping mice. You know, they're absolutely bulletproof pet. I've kept hopping mice for since 2014, if not beforehand. You know. Generally speaking, you treat them well, you clean them, they're, you know, they're pretty safe pets. Like, you know, it's so much cooler to have a hopping mouse than it is to have a um, domestic mouse sort of thing. Plains rats, yeah. bit more tricky, bit more jerks like to kick the shit out of each other for no reason sometimes. So <laughs> not not as um, not as great a pet, um, but hopping mice, you just can't fault them. Um, and so, you know, we were big advocates for that. And then having like a, I guess, not a turnaround time, but we said we think it's worth reviewing how these could be implemented, other species could be implemented into pet shops. So things like sugar gliders, obviously responsibly, you know, you don't, you don't want every Tom, Dick and Harry pet shop having them, but you know, there are places and avenues and, you know, people have all these opinions about pet shops. And I guess after having worked in one, I'm sure you'll see this too. Yeah. You're going to have your opinion about how heinous a pet shop is and how terrible it is, but it's not going to change the fact that probably 60% of the population, maybe 70% will still go to a pet shop for their, you know, their animal acquisitions and their animal needs. So you might as well support a better pet shop doing the right job um, than a dodgy pet shop or a dodgy backyard breeder. Not to say there aren't good private breeders either. You know what I mean? No, there's the best of both worlds there. Like there's plenty of um, good good breeders out there. And, you know, I think there's plenty of good pet shops out there too. It's one of those things that I, I, I see so many people come through the door that want to deal with a pet shop because there's someone to go back to and they're scared that there's not necessarily mm. going to be somebody to go back to with after sales support or any sort of thing. Oh, you know. absolutely. Yeah, and lots of people like to have a warranty on things, you know, mm. so as far as I'm not talking animal wise necessarily, but as far as enclosures, lighting, you yeah. know, bits and bobs and stuff like that, people love having that safety factor there of going, well, I know that I've got that one year manufacturer's warranty or whatever on X product. So there's, there's that involved there too. And 
it is surprising and you know a lot of people do get into the reptile hobby through a pet shop and whether they're they're still buying animals through a pet shop after the first couple or whatever like that's one thing but a lot of people will then discover things you know like their private breeders and stuff like that after there but i, I think the pet the pet shops have their place and it's kind of amazing what your pet shops have to jump through with like national parks and stuff like that too to be able to go through and get a license and you know not just any pet shop can apply for a reptile license to be able to sell reptiles they actually have to prove to parks that the staff there have got x amount of experience and knowledge and yada 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 to to actually deal with it too oh absolutely i mean you just sort of made me think of two sort of important points with that one of the reasons national parks was so interested in promoting an expanded species list for pet shops is that Obviously, pet shops are a lot more regulated than pet breeders, so it gives parks a bit more ability to control things. But there's much better accountability for the customer, you know what I mean? And yeah. that's something that National Parks is acutely aware of as well, is that they want people coming into um, reptile pet keeping to have a good starting experience. They don't want these people getting wild-caught animals. They don't want these people getting sick animals. They want people coming in to get you know a safety guarantee and a good experience, you know? Because as it starts to get worse and worse and worse, if things get run away and it's not a good experience, it means more comes back to make more hassle for national parks. So, you know, it gives them the ability to control that. And so you're exactly right, having that callback experience, you know, um, you know, being able to just call up and go, oh, I'm concerned about, you know, little, uh, what's a standard, little Monty, Monty the, the python's temperature, you know, like why isn't he eating? It's winter, you know, all those sorts of things. People like that ability. And so you're, you're absolutely right there. Brubation season is a brutal season in a pet shop. Yeah. No, but, you know, like, that's the truth of it. And that's a lot of my job is, or, you know, a lot of the guys at work is answering those kind of questions for people and for novice reptile keepers. And I think that's that plays a very important role in our hobby to for new keepers to be able to have that support there and know that they can just call somebody because they're not necessarily wanting to put themselves online and ask a silly question or something like that in, in fears of being you know taken down in flames or anything of the sort so hmm. oh absolutely and i mean you like from my my experience in the pet shop there are plenty of times where people have had a bad initial experience they've bought an animal from someone that hasn't been in good health the person's not replying to them or something's gone wrong um, and, you know, they've come to the pet shop because it's where they're at, you know. They've tried posting something on Facebook. They've gotten flamed by everyone, and, you know, you can give them a better experience in the right direction. And, you know, sometimes they'll just totally ignore you, and that sucks. But other times you can also, you know, make sure they take the right path and make a good decision, and that's, you know, makes you feel better and makes the animal better, hopefully. I do like getting those calls where, you know, like all of a sudden they've just quickly you know, changed a thermostat or put a bigger wattage globe in an enclosure or done X, Y, Z. And then they give you that kind of, um, that kind of praise and they go, you know what, thanks so much. You've helped this animal out. You've, you've helped me out. You've helped me to learn X, you know, it's really good to kind of get that, that feedback from a lot of customers too. And I do feel like a lot of the good customers actually do give you that in the pet shop as well. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, like, it's kind of, I think, good in that as well. Like we've spoken about it briefly, I think, before we were on, on recording tonight. But there's just all this different different information online and everyone finds it hard to sort of pass what they should do. Like what, what information should I take and implement? And having someone that is, I guess, accountable that they can go back to and say, hey, you told me the wrong thing or hey, you told me the right thing um, or how to structure their thoughts really helps a lot of people too. And I think that's something pet shops offer at least. Um, so I'm, I'm yeah. very much not anti-pet shop. 
having seen the ins and outs of it, you know, like anything, again, good and bad, but they're very good overall, I think, when done right. Yeah, that's good. All right, mate. Well, I uh, I think we might um might wrap this up a little bit shortly just because uh, Jason's unfortunately had to duck away. His toddler's having a bit of a meltdown upstairs. Oh, no. <laughs> He's just been messaging me going, it's an absolute World War Three. So <laughs> uh, I feel sorry for the bugger. But, um, yeah, I'll uh, quickly let him know that we're uh, just about to wrap it up. Um, but, dude, thank you so much for coming on and talking to us. It has been an absolute wealth of knowledge and I know I've kind of just let you run with it, but you're a brilliant talker and, you know, the amount of experience that you've you've gained and you've got in these few short years being six, seven years or whatever is absolutely phenomenal and I'm quite jealous to be honest. Um, is there anything else you want to throw out there? Can you, Where can people kind of contact you if they're looking for any particular animals that you're working with? People can try contact me on my Weirds and Beards page, but I'm not going to lie in saying that I don't really check it anymore. Um, <laughs> I, I will try to get back to you. Um if not, yeah, I, I've kind of, I still like being involved in the community, but I'm not really, until I post something for public availability is generally when I have it available and be happy to talk yeah. about it. So, but I mean, if you've got questions and you see me commenting uh, on a thread or you want to message my personal Facebook, you can, um, you know, with like, not where can I find the species? I don't generally reply to those now because I'm tired of them. But if you've got a husbandry question or something, I am happy to answer it best I can. Yeah, don't take offense to Mitch not answering you because occasionally he doesn't even answer to me and that's just a... <laughs> that's oh, there's just a few a threads bit. where I just ignore them for ages. I'm like, oh, no, I'm very behind now and I shit. <laughs> <laughs> oh, too good, mate. Well, yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Uh, even just talking about that licensing, I think that's going to bring a lot of... Um, a lot of good topics to you know people's minds and to the forefront and stuff like that. But that's something that I think a lot, lot more people in this hobby actually need to be aware of of what's going on because... You know, as we said, probably eighty odd percent of the hobby don't have no idea what's going on with this sort of stuff. So, yeah, yeah, good, absolutely. Good to get more people listening to it. All right, guys. Well, I'm going to wrap this up now. We'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at MoreliaPythonRadio.com and email them at info@MoreliaPythonRadio.com. As far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can also email us at AustralianHerptoculture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herpeticulture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night.